0: Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be around this rotating globe, wherever you are, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, which as the times around us and the events around us get crazier and crazier and crazier, we're trying to probe beyond the edge of the radar to see what might be coming and what events are, shall we say, giving us some Forward Thinking Clues. Uh, Tonight we're doing a part two of the show that we, because of uh, one of my guests uh, had some issues that we couldn't bring him on last night, Uh, we're going to do part two of what we started out to do last weekend and then replayed last night. The the Didymos story, the Dimorphos story, the DART impact mission story. Because in the last three weeks, it's actually three weeks, not two weeks, which I wrote in the promo. It's amazing how time flies when you're not having fun. Um, There have been some really interesting developments. And what we're going to try to do tonight is to track on two stories that are co-mingled in terms of the DART uh, asteroid redirect saga. But before we get to that, um, I want to do a couple of news items at the top, like we usually do. If you go to the other side of if you're new to the show, that's our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com, uh, that will take you to our homepage, click on tonight's banner which says rather dramatically and believe me there is data to back this up, um, unknown ships are hanging half a mile off the park bow, the continuing saga of the derelict asteroid impact mission So you click on that down, that will take you to the guest page. And right under the guest page, you will see where it says fast links to items. Click on my name and that will take you to the section of radio pictures where we have news. And item number one, uh, after a number of stops and starts and a hurricane and rolling the uh, stack back to the uh, Vehicle Assembly Building, NASA has now set another date for their next launch attempt of the unmanned Artemis 1 test mission. Uh, Item number two, or Artemis 2, which will be in a couple of years, will take a crew around the moon. And then uh, sometime after that, another year or so, it will take a crew to a landing on the moon at the South Pole. But this first new launch attempt of Artemis 1 is to send the unmanned spacecraft on a long looping trajectory which now it turns out because of the delayed launch date uh, mid-November, November November 14th, and I'll get to the details of that in a minute, Um, they will only have about a 25-day mission orbiting the moon before they return. Now, this is kind of interesting because one of the objectives of Artemis was to kind of really stress every aspect of the spacecraft, and the system and the management and the operations and all the things that go into, you know, taking people back to the moon. And their original plan was to have a mission that was something like 42 days in length, which is roughly twice the amount of time that the uh, Orion spacecraft can uh, uh, survive with consumables and power and all that in orbit without getting back to Earth. Because of the late launch date and the way the celestial mechanics of the moon orbiting the Earth and the Earth orbiting the sun and the fact that you cannot have an eclipse of the spacecraft en route to the moon or coming back from the moon more than 90 minutes, the way all those celestial factors line up, turns out that the new mission for Artemis, Artemis 1, uh, launching on the 14th in the wee, wee hours of the 14th, Will be only 25 days, which is not really the thorough ring out period that we had in hearing about. And I'm going to be very interested to hear uh, some of my old friends, including uh, uh, Bill Harwood at CBS, ask the NASA mission managers, how did you wind up cutting about half the time uh, of the extended mission that would really ring out the onboard systems on the Orion spacecraft? And I'll be really intrigued with their answers uh, because we could delay it even further and then get back to a longer mission window. But for some reason, they're wanting to go on the 14th. Now, hearken back to what I said several weeks ago, which was I kept seeing these repeated stops and starts as a plausible way to delay the Artemis mission overall. Why delay? Because when it gets there, when it gets to the moon with all these incredible high-tech, state-of-the-art HD television cameras, there's no way, if they give us live uncensored television, that anybody's going to be able to miss the damn ruins on the moon. So, is it possible that all these delays have been built in so that they only get there after the Capstone mission, which is supposed to arrive on the 13th is in lunar orbit and the Denuri mission is less than three weeks away coming along behind. In other words, does Capstone and Artemis have to be there essentially simultaneously for one to corroborate the other? And is this part of the hidden mission plan? Uh, I can't answer that tonight. You know, it's like we're trying to piece together uh Uh, all the stuff from outside. There's nobody on the inside at the moment leaking. So we basically have to do it by the numbers and look at the overall mission plans and see where things are congruent and where they're contradictory. And, you know, it's kind of like the old checks and balances game. So you have to kind of figure out by the consistencies or in this case, the inconsistencies, what's really going on. In terms of this show, it makes for that night very very interesting radio because as I was telling some of our folks uh, just before airtime um, it turns out they're going to try to launch um, Artemis 1 on this unmanned 25 day mission uh, on the night of the uh, 13th the morning of the 14th the launch time on the east coast east Coast time will be 1207 a.m. on the morning of the 14th which of course is still Sunday night here in New Mexico and our show goes on the air at 10 um, uh, mountain time which is midnight eastern time which is seven minutes before the launch t minus zero so we will know in the count leading up to launch by the time we come on the air that night whether there's going to be a live mission attempt down to the last few minutes of the what they call the uh, terminal count or whether they have some other problem which crops up with probably hydrogen and fueling and quick disconnects and all that. And they're going to wave off. So by the time we come on the air that night, I'll be able to say at the top of the show, either the countdown is in progress, in which case we will go to the Cape live and we'll track through uh, the interesting events of getting this thing off the ground Or I will come on and I will say, no, there has been another wave off and they are working on a rescheduled date. So that will be the middle of November, which is about a month from tonight. Item number two, um, remember there's more than one horse in this return to the moon horse race. There's the NASA Artemis program, which of course is run by the US government, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And as part of the Artemis program, there are government components, which is the SLS, the Space Launch System. There is the Orion spacecraft, uh, which is built by um, uh, Lockheed Martin. Uh, there is, I'm sorry, Boeing. There is the um, uh, service module, which is built by the European Space Agency. And on, in terms of mission number three, which will be the first effort by Artemis to land human beings, Americans, again on the moon, targeted now for 2025. Elon Musk is in the mix because NASA gave him a contract to create the lunar lander that will take the crew from lunar orbit in their Artemis-Orion spacecraft down to the moon's surface, and that's going to be one of uh, his variants of the so-called starship. Well, apropos of that, this past week, the world's first civilian space tourist, an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley who made, you know, mucho bucks uh, doing uh, uh, computer stuff, uh, Dennis Tito, who remember bought for $20 million plus a private tourist flight to the International Space Station some years ago to the Russian segment, he has now signed up for an unknown amount of money to SpaceX to be the second tourist flight or on the second tourist flight around the moon sometime after the Artemis um, 3 landing. And that opens up all kinds of things. Uh, It's going to be him, his wife, and 10 other uh, tourists on this second flight. As you know, the uh, first flight, of tourists under Musk's guidance will be a Japanese billionaire and an unknown uh, number and uh, uh, population of other tourists who are going to be paying their own way to take their first journey around the moon. Again, this is extraordinarily opening and democratic because all of these folks with all those eyeballs and all those cameras And all those binoculars and all those means of high-tech digital recording, there's no way they cannot see from a 125-mile orbit around the moon, which is what that story number two specifically describes for Dennis Tito's flight. There's no way they can't see the ruins, particularly um, on the far side of the moon, which is much better preserved than the near side. This is all auguring remarkable things in terms of a transformation of human consciousness as to who we are, what we're all doing in this place, what our real history has been, you know, what has been suppressed for, you know, half a centuries ever since NASA started going to the moon, even before that with unmanned missions. It's all going to hit the uh, proverbial rotating kitchen appliance in the next few years, if not the next few weeks, if in fact, the imagery from Capstone and Denuri and Artemis 1 of the moon, the close-ups of the moon, are honest and uncensored, which in this day and age when anybody for $30 million can send a private mission to orbit the moon, is kind of probably in the cards. It's not going to be possible for these guys to um, keep everything kind of on the QT for very much longer, which means we are about to undergo the most extraordinary expansion of human consciousness, certainly in our lifetimes, probably in the lifetime of the human uh, species here on Earth since way back when when things began in a very non-historical fashion, contrary to the history which we have been said. On that note, item number three, and this, of course, is the substance now of what we're going to be talking about tonight. NASA did something three weeks ago which had two dramatic effects. And so we're going to be talking with our guests and panelists tonight about both of these effects. One is they slammed a spacecraft into this asteroid orbiting a much bigger asteroid about 7 million miles away from Earth the night of the impact. And it had spectacular effects. I mean, really spectacular effects, which according to the agency itself, were totally unmodeled. It exceeded all their expectations, and we'll be going through the details uh, momentarily. If you look at item number three, this is video put together from the still images that were taken by the Italian little sub-satellite that the DART spacecraft kind of tossed out the trunk several days before their own impact, and it was a little CubeSat, with its own independent solar power and batteries and cameras and radios and control and all that. And it took pictures from a standoff distance of the impact. It then flew by itself a few minutes later and then continued on looking backward, taking lots and lots of pictures as it receded from the um, uh, site of the impact. And they'd been downlinking at literally phone in. You know, dial-up rates because of the limited radio bandwidth on this little CubeSat. For the last several weeks, they've been basically sending down to Earth the remarkable sequence of imagery. So what we're seeing is only a few frames will ultimately, I think, be uh, composited into a smooth, high-motion, high-resolution video sequence. So we'll see from before impact and then after impact and then way after impact and we can square that from different angles of looking at the post-impact system from the Earth, from Earth observatories, and all of that will kind of fill in many of the gaps now in the official story. Um, So without further ado, why don't I introduce my guest tonight? Because uh, for that, you want to go back up to the banner on the uh, guest page and click on where it says Fast Links to BIOS, Uh, We've got Andrew Curry with us, who is, as you know, a uh, storyboard artist. Um, He's worked uh, in murals in schools, community centers. He's a graphic designer. He works in Hollywood. He works for large and small Canadian companies in television and film and commercial TV advertising. And he has a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of British Columbia. So, Andrew, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Hi Richard, thank you for having us again and having me. Okay, uh, we've also got Robert Morningstar with us from New York City. Uh, Robert has a remarkable background. He's a specialist in photo interpretation, geometric analysis, computer imaging. He's a graduate of the Power Memorial Academy and was a regional state scholar at Fordham University where he received a degree in psychology. Um, and while at Fordham in 69, he participated as a research fellow in a U.S. Navy-sponsored program to develop artificial intelligence. He's an expert in Chinese. He's an FAA-licensed private pilot with some remarkable stories there. He's also the current publisher and editor of the UFO Spotlight and UFO Digest. And he's basically a civilian space intelligence analyst. So without further ado, Robert, welcome back also to The Other Side of Midnight.
1: Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here.
0: Looking uh, forward. Okay. Well, we have a lot to get to, including some really interesting new stuff at the South Pole, which oddly enough connects to our conversation regarding Didymos tonight. Uh, do we have Ron with us yet, Keith? Oh, yes. There you are. Ron Gerbron yes. is our resident uh, uncredentialed polymath. Those are his words. He's really a generalist. Okay, no <laughs> He's really a generalist, um, and he knows a bit about an awful lot of stuff, including extraterrestrial archaeology and he's therefore one of the very few experts in this field anywhere on the planet except for those in the deep black deep state government uh, occupations who of course never appear on television or radio or write blogs or send tweets or whatever so um, and we've got Keith Morgan with us who of course will uh, have some interesting ideas from time to time uh, let's see let me start with you Andrew um, it's been now three weeks. Why don't we begin with what what new stuff you have learned about the dark mission?
2: Sure. Do you want to go to my items?
0: That's a good idea. <laughs> okay.
2: So if we go to the show banner. Everybody. Well, if you're new to the show, what you do is you go to the show banner. Uh, so that, go to the other side of midnight. Com. The show banner will come up, and the show banner tonight says Richard. What does it say? I'm going to go back to it. <laughs> unknown ships are hanging half a mile off the port bow so it's us the em imaging team you tap on that and you'll find um our fast link so mine is under andrew and i've got just a couple tonight now um so my impetus for tonight richard was something that you said uh this past week uh so folks we have a lot of back channels those that listen a lot will know this Either on the phone or sharing emails, and then fighting, and then agreeing, and then making up, and everything else we do.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but um, this new image, and if we click on my number one, uh, this is a image from Richard. Do you want to describe it? This is a, a Na- okay, NASA. Okay, th- this, is,
0: this is an official yeah. NASA picture from the mission, and what I did was to kind of tinker with it and do yeah. some compositing, so we see into the shadows. It was. It was recomposited by a a citizen scientist named Roman Tyshenko, who does some really good work. And so after I did some tinkering, we brightened it up so you can see into the shadows. And you'll see there at the top of the the large object on the right, which is uh, Didymos, which is supposed to be half a mile in diameter. And then on the left is uh, Dimorphos, which is supposed to be around 600 feet in diameter. You can see into the shadowing near the so-called North Pole, There's all kinds of lattice work and geometry and lacy geometric structures that should not be on a natural asteroid. And then around the edge, around the limb, you can see this scattering of of smaller points of light that appear to be semi-regularly spaced, like there's also more geometry that is above the surface that we're seeing but has long since eroded away. So we're only seeing a, a fraction of what used to be there, and it was uh, Tushenko's really excellent processing that allowed me to bring out some of these details. So I kicked it over to Andrew and I said, "What do you think of this?"
2: And Andrew, well, you
0: <laughs> go ahead. You
2: said, "Yeah, you said that," and then you also said, "Oh my gosh, it looks like a battle wagon," <laughs> and I, I was like, "Oh my gosh," and immediately. And Richard, do you want to describe for those that are, you know, maybe on, on our younger side what a battle wagon means?
0: Well, it's a term that came from between the wars, actually pre-World War I, when Teddy Roosevelt, you know, sent the great white fleet around the world. And back then, the capital ships, the big ships that nations were using to score off against one another were dreadnoughts and or, i.e. battleships. And the slang name for the battleships was battle wagons. So I just had this kind of gut visceral impression that what we're seeing in Didymos close up is the geometry of artificiality, incredible erosion, parts of it eaten away so we can see the geometric interior. We can even see the kind of depth of the shell of artificiality around this former object, which I think was a real asteroid, because what better way to live in space than to basically build a whole bunch of stuff on a big asteroid <clears throat> that you then can mine under your feet for resources like water, oxygen, nitrogen, you know, various other chemical compounds, minerals. You can, you know, go distill them. You can make stuff out of them. In other words, it becomes your own source of resources as an independent, maybe battle wagon is not the right term, but I got that feeling because remember In our model, the reason we're seeing any of this stuff is there was a great, great war in the ancient solar system. And if you have a war, you've got to have opposing military forces, and those would have been in space, and they would have been whatever the era would then call battle wagons. So that's just kind of my visceral impression. So that's what I said to Andrew.
2: Yeah, and then I immediately thought of the original 1978 TV series, it began, I think as a movie it came out in the theaters at first, Battlestar Galactica Glenn A. Larson, I yep. believe I was, was just going to say, news. Glenn Larson yeah, and I found a still from the show, and then <laughs> if you're hearing a howling <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that guys, but uh, that's my son who's about to go to bed, and he's howling through the through the walls <laughs> to try to get me to come up, so excuse that for a moment, I'm being a bit distracted Um, uh, so I got a still from the Battlestar Galactica show and actually reversed it because it's, it's in the opposite direction. And it, Richard, it just reminded me of this shot of the, of the great fleet that was, you know, the ragtag fleet that was being, you know, headed and rescued by Battlestar Galactica, you know, a science fiction show, but very, very interesting. And, um, the same sort of paneling that this model, because it's a model, it was a real model. They didn't have the digital effects back then that they do now. And, Those panels on the Battlestar just immediately reminded me of of Didymos, and not only that, but Didymos has like a knob right at the right at the perfect like at the apex point. So -hmm. if we come out of that, yeah, we come out of that.
0: Look look at all that symmetry. It's like we're looking kind of catty corner at the front, which is backward. In other words, the the the, uh, spacecraft is moving around the sun to the upper right. But Dimorphos, which is a big object to the left, is coming around toward the spacecraft, and the spacecraft is moving toward it in a counterclockwise orbit. And so you've got the mothership, and then you've got this thing orbiting about half a mile away, and we smashed into with dark the smaller thing on the left. And I don't know how much is left of it. I, I have a feeling there isn't very much left given the extraordinary energies that we saw but to me it's the eroded but obvious symmetries and geometry of didymos on the right hand side that say overwhelmingly if you know what you're looking at this is not a natural object this is this is artificially re reordered redone re-engineered
2: yeah yeah and if we come out of my number one then we'll skip we'll skip past my number two just for the moment and go to number three. This one's called Didymos Battle Wagon Enhanced. Again, we're using it as a as a term just to kind of ground us in the idea of artificiality. It's not necessarily it was a battleship. Uh, and what I did is I just did a quick illustration just oh to kind of Oh my god, emphasize. look at that. Yeah, Richard, there's like a, an apex nodule uh, capstone type of end to this thing. It's got panels just like a Battlestar Galactica, you know, Yep. Front hull. And I, I, again, I didn't have a chance to look really close at the lattice work, but you're absolutely correct that there is repeating geometry and symmetry all over this thing. And you can see the eroding decks. If you if you put it really big on your computer screen and turn the lights out in your room and stand back a couple of feet, you'll see all this stuff pop out. Just do like widescreen on it. the problem
0: is we're all used to seeing brand new stuff. We yeah. don't live in a culture where there's lots of ruins unless you live in Watts or Harlem or someplace like that. And so the idea, the art form of looking at ancient eroded stuff and looking through the erosion at the underlying symmetry and order and organization and design elements. It, you know, as, as the Boeing study said, there's about a third of the population that can do this just in their head there's a third that can be taught and there's about a third that can never see this stuff. So for the two thirds who can see this, you know, welcome to the club. And for the third that can't, uh, you know, I'm I'm thinking of, uh, you know, what's his name in the A-team? Pity the poor people who can't see it because it's stunning. And it has such extraordinary implications for the origin and destiny of all the rest of us, i.e. human beings in the 21st century, here on planet Earth, Mr.
2: Yeah. T, um, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Now I know we're yes, Mr. T. Break. Thank you, Ron.
0: Thank
3: you, Ron.
2: Yeah, mm. I know we're it looks, like a,
3: it looks like a coconut, by the way.
2: Well, Ron, if we come out of yeah. that and go to my number two, and I would really like Richard to kind of talk about this because it's the model, it's the model of this thing, this this repeating diamondy shaped. Model that we've been talking about that is absolutely extraordinary. Do you want to talk about it quickly, Richard? Just tell well, people what Well, this is numbers? this
0: is a a time sequence video composed obviously of individual frames taken recently by Mars Express, which is still orbiting Mars. Went into orbit around uh, 2003. It's still there. It's in this very long looping orbit that takes it about 10,000 miles away and then well inside the orbit of the inner Martian moon Phobos, which is 6,000 miles above the surface. And what they did is they they videoed a sequence by stills of Deimos, which is the outer moon, the two moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos. The outer moon is around 30,000 miles away. And from their inner orbit, Mars Express looked at Deimos as it tracked in its orbit around Mars with Jupiter with its four moons in the background about half a billion miles further away from the sun than Mars is. And what's interesting is because you're in the equatorial plane of Deimos, you can really see this truncated octahedral or truncated diamond shape. And when, when we flew by an asteroid some years ago, when I say we, the human race, it was the Europeans that did it, uh, en route to 67P with the Dawn spacecraft, they flew by an asteroid 30 seconds, course, four miles across named Steins. Thank you. And that spacecraft turned out to be of a diamond shape. Well, it turns out that all of these seem to have a kind of a common model form, kind of like Chevys and Olds and Cadillacs and whatever. And they're different sizes, but they're in fact all of the same basic geometry. And that, I think, is a major clue as to who did it. Who built these things, and why? And on that note, we're going to stop for a momentary pause here at the bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My uh, guest this morning too numerous at the moment to mention. Our subject is Didymos and how it could literally change the fate of humankind. We shall return.
4: Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. On the other side of midnight.com.
5: Hey,
0: and welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, October sixteenth, twenty twenty two. We're talking about the Didymos mission, or the DART mission, to Didymos, the big guy, and Dimorphos, the little guy. And Ron can tell you about the background mythology of their naming. Um, And we're talking about the fact... If you like. Well, we'll get to that, Um, yes. What we're talking about is the idea that NASA did something which... I'm not sure how much of NASA really knew beforehand what they were going to do. I suspect there's a lot of people now asking a lot of questions inside because the results they got were so off the wall, so beyond the various models that uh, nobody could kind of ignore what happened, which was wildly beyond most, if not all, their expectations. So let me return to Andrew's subject with the video that he put up, because uh, as I said a few days ago, the Mars Express spacecraft took this series of, of uh, images uh, composed into a video of Deimos, the outer moon, which is you know maybe eight, nine miles across, uh, orbiting Mars uh, um, at about 30,000 miles distance in the equatorial plane of uh, Mars itself. And it and Phobos, the inner moon, which is only 6,000 miles up, had this remarkably truncated, uh, agonizingly artificial form. And we've got much better close-up images of Phobos than Deimos. But the overall geometry of all these objects almost looks like there was some plant somewhere that stamped these things out on a variety of scales, ranging from miles across to just like 1,300 feet, which is the size, I think, of Ryugu, but they basically all have this same incredibly badly eroded form, and now we've walked up on one which is only half a mile across, and it appears to be some of the best preserved surface detail of any that we have seen, and then the question is, is that just accidental, or was that part of the plan, an extraordinarily ancient, millions-of-years-old plan to give the human race a gift, a time capsule from the ancient past. And the human's response was to go out and clobber it, destroy it, blow it to kingdom come, like humans do with a lot of their history. Hey, Richard.
3: Go ahead. Uh, Yeah, there's a a detail that I ran across in the tech papers on the... um... Uh, asteroid stuff I think fits in there the uh, there's they have a they have a lovely catalog at JPL or someplace of the small NEAs near-earth asteroids like Didymos uh, slash um, Dimorphos uh, that they are interested in that are binaries that is just like the one we're looking at here and uh There are, by 240 of them, something like that, on that list, out of a million near-Earth asteroids that they have cataloged. So they've been paying attention to these. uh, And they said they're they're very uh, scarce, relatively speaking, and I don't know how they do the percentages, because I don't think they have full numbers, uh, of the uh, MB. A's are the main belt asteroids, you know, in the asteroid belt. There's some of them scattered around in there, but not very many. But there's one detail that they all have in common, all but a couple of them. They didn't – no place I saw gave me an exact number, but they said, you know, almost all of them. Uh, They are – they call them top-shaped, which if you think of a dreidel, you know, the ceremonial top, that kind of top, not the kind of top that it means to me, but they're an oblate spheroid with a equatorial bulge, as they say. And they happen to be within a degree or so of the plane of ecliptic in, in their orientation. In other words, they're straight up and down, relative to the rest of the solar system, just right. like the planets are, right. which is not typical for just every rock that's tumbling around out there. And, uh, you know, that could be a factor. And it, the, those lumps on Ryugu and Bennu, uh, the two that we've gotten the best look at uh, so far, are um, probably related. It turns out that the, the large knob, already heard it referenced, uh, uh, that's kind of at the point on both of them, it is about the same – they're both like 600 feet across. In other words, they're both about the same size as Dimorphos. Actually,
0: I don't think that's correct. I think one is 3,000 feet and the other is around 1,500 feet. I'm not talking about the whole asteroid, just the bump on it. Okay.
3: Just the bump. Okay. But the
0: fact that they're located at the poles or one of the poles. See, the problem with the, with the dual yeah. asteroid model and the idea that when asteroids have little satellites going around, there's some kind of tidal thing going on so the equator bulges out, is that Ryugu right. and Bennu are – totally solitary asteroids there are no satellites dimorphos and didymos are unique not only in the sense of a big guy and a much smaller guy orbiting each other but the plane crossing earth exactly so the eclipses and occultations can be seen from earth and to the period as i said to mm-hmm. robert last week um uh 11 hours 55 minutes really caught my attention because it's a whisker away from 12 hours which is half the diurnal cycle of the earth and my feeling is that this was given to us it was specifically put together as a time capsule for whatever civilization would pick up you know the the, the torch millions of years after the horrendous conflict the great war millions of years ago that we've been positing and it was designed so that we would go there go inside and find the goodies find the libraries find the records find the video find our history find out everything about how we got here which has nothing to do with the way normal history is written obviously and somebody decided to go out and blow the thing away and i'm just praying that they went and looted it beforehand the guys in the secret space program and then turned to NASA and said, OK, you know, it's a free fire zone. Do whatever you will with what you will. That's the, that's part one of this of this idea that they, we did something to something that's not natural. It's not asteroids. It was two ships or a habitat, a, a space dock, if you will, and a ship, uh, Dimorphos being the ship. And we just, in our first mission to an asteroid to find out really important stuff, we just banged the hell out of it and changed its orbit from 11 hours 55 minutes to 11 hours and 23 minutes, shortening its period dramatically. And thereby is the extraordinary data to confirm, in fact, was an artificial object and not an asteroid, and when we get further into my stuff later in the evening, I'll lay out exactly how that all fits together.
3: Uh, Richard, what might be helpful uh, what might be hopeful is that uh, the those things scattered around in, the, in those near- Earth orbits, let's hope that that's an outer space Rotterdam, you know, like a uh, ship uh, what do they call the, what do they call the yards where the ship's dry up uh, dried up. Not dry docks, but where they where the ships where ships go to live out their their last rusty years. You know, they just oh, like all
0: the Liberty ships that are anchored in in, in somewhere off uh, where you live, uh, Andrew, in that day between Seattle and Vancouver.
3: Yeah, Rotterdam is is that area is the that harbor in uh, the Netherlands, and it's full of them. And most of them. There's also uh, one north
0: of San Francisco, if I remember, up by Redmond, original, oh, sure.
3: not Redmond, Richmond. and there's. And there's something. There's one on the east coast somewhere too.
0: Yeah, but, but the, these are not uh, all together. They're all orbiting in separate orbits. So, you
3: well, know, my point is that the that uh, those ships that are sitting in those conditions, most of would most of them don't have anything in the hold to speak of. You know, they've been pretty not necessarily completely stripped at all, but you know, emptied out. They don't have they don't have leftover uh, photographs and boxes of stuff.
0: Yeah, but they're so not the, uh, left as time capsules. The, 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 yeah, the I know. The analogy were... totally breaks down. I'm talking about no, something I, deliberately you're... done to save part of ancient humanity for future humanity who can reconstruct what really happened and how we really got here.
3: I'm right there with you. I'm just saying there probably most of them are empty. So it's a matter of getting lucky. Now, I don't know how they would know that that one was one of the ones that.
0: Well, wait, why would, most, why would I... most of them be empty? If if it was the end of a super colossal war that destroyed whole planets, the catastrophe, the disorganization, the panic, the fear, the death of billions of people, God knows how many people died in this war, wouldn't have left anybody any time to do any kind of salvage. So I think what we're seeing are just derelicts orbiting where they were when the great catastrophe happened, and there's incredible stuff in all of them to be gleaned if you go back and rendezvous, and go inside, oh, I, and don't destroy them.
3: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very opposed to blowing them up before we can look inside. I <laughs> couldn't, couldn't Well, that's why more. I think
0: there's a um, – because yeah. it, it would be crazy if there is a space program, which there is, Dorothy. It'd be crazy mm-hmm. for our guys not to want to learn as much about this incredibly ancient, sophisticated, hyperdimensional physics and technology as they could before they destroy something. And I think it was a handoff between the secret guys and the public NASA guys because they had a good use in terms of this planetary defender model, which, of course, if we have a secret space program and we have control of gravity, the whole idea of bumping into stuff with spaceships and knocking them like billiard balls off course is crazy. It's obsolete. It doesn't make any sense. But again, depending upon the, the compartmentalization between the secret space program and the NASA program, there could well be such ironclad classified barriers that the honest guys are clueless as to what the secret guys really have or are really capable of using. Uh, and never the twins yeah. Robert, you're being awfully quiet. Yes. Well, um I
1: have this saying that uh, children should be seen and not heard and uh, <laughs> adults should be heard and not seen, but I'm just listening to you guys. It's um, it's an intriguing theory we have here. I think that we are gathering more and more evidence that our scenario is right and they blasted uh, a spaceship. Well, I Kingdom think War.
0: I can prove it by the numbers. And someone said to me, to mm-hmm. say, well, people are not impressed by numbers. And I went, what? because numbers are the foundation of any science. It was a guy back in the um, 19th century, Arthur Eddington, who was one of the folks that actually verified first uh, Einstein's relativity with a huge controversial story attached to that. But Eddington is quoted famously as saying, gentlemen, you do not have a science unless you can express it in numbers. Well, NASA at that press conference last Tuesday gave us the numbers where I think tonight I can prove beyond a reasonable doubt, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that we actually almost destroyed an ancient spaceship. And it's not complicated numbers. It's incredibly simple numbers. So when we're at that part of the show, I will lay them out, and you may obviously make your own judgments.
5: Richard,
1: I want to say say that uh, I agree with you on that score. But the sad thing is that our nation has been so dumbed down over the last 40 years, that almost num- it's, there You might say there's a mathematics priesthood, like they used to talk about the computer priesthood, mm-hmm. and they have uh, put it out of reach by dumbing down uh, the the uh, people who are graduating from schools. Just look at the. The disastrous results of the most recent SAT scores, the worst in forty years. So I, and I think that's intentional and that's a very sad thing. So only people who were well educated in mathematics can understand numbers. So the great thing about your show is that you make it accessible to the ordinary citizen who's not a mathematician. Well, and
0: we are we, we can explain uh, this in numbers and we can also explain it in English. And it doesn't take a person who really is any kind of a math expert to get this. So tonight is kind of like a test. For those people at the end of the show, we will ask for responses. How many understand the incredible breakthrough that NASA gave us, either inadvertently, and because we're dealing with all kinds of dual and triple agendas now, you can never tell the players, even without a scorecard, you can't tell them, because there are like dual agendas, people who are leaking under the pretense that they're not leaking, under the pretense that they're really ignorant when they really know something is wrong and they're hoping that somebody outside will come and rescue them with real stuff. I mean, we live in a very complicated time. So, Can I to in here for a minute? Yeah, by all means. Oh.
6: Okay, if you look at um, Andrew's third image, the one of the enhanced uh, rock, you want to call it, but it's, it's not a rock. Did anybody notice the little protrusion at the bottom in the middle of that thing that looks like an airspeed sensor on a jet. Yes. Also, it, it's has it, it, it the is same called shape as what... Hey, hey. It's called the the a... Call same thing too. that was on the Tic Tac. Same thing on the Tic Tac. Anybody
3: noticed that? Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Huh. I hadn't. Uh,
0: well, there's also point. something on the far left which sticks out which, on a better version of this that I've got, actually has some geometric detail I mean, there's so many geometric things on this. You can't tell what anything is for. You just know it's not natural. It's not a rock. Because look at the scale. If this whole thing is half a mile from the left edge to the where it goes in the shadow on the right, then these things are hundreds of feet across. They're not tiny.
2: You know,
1: Richard, the way, by the way, the, the object that uh, Keith is referring to is called the pitot tube. And um, I want to talk about something that I've noticed uh, in, the, in the original photographs of, um, of Dimorphus. with regard to the spaceship that uh, Andrew has illustrated. It seems to me, if you look closely at the area that Andrew has highlighted in his drawing, and you look under the rubble, it kind of looks like a turtle shell under the rubble, like the spaceship is... Uh, resting on the object, yet its contours are easily discernible. It's also symmetrical. If you want to talk about it in terms of topography, there's a central valley and there's symmetrical uh, ranges on either side. And I think that that, I I describe it as a turtle shell, because it rises above the regular surface of uh, dimorphous before it was destroyed. And I think we should look more, more closely at that. In the, um, there are other photographs that are of greater detail. Robert, yes, Robert, you
3: introduced a magic word, the turtle, <laughs> the
5: because
1: turtle. it's
3: in mythology – No, I'm serious. In mythology, turtles, which most most people pay very little attention to, uh, are uh, often uh, connected with sky events. Now, what would give them the idea about having flying turtles?
1: Well, flying turtles and, and flying saucers kind of look alike from a distance. You know, that curvature is... Um,
0: and the plates. Yeah, and the plates. Well, the you, plate. you, Ron, you remember that that um, Native Americans had a, had a name for a continent of the United States before the Europeans arrived. They called it Turtle Island. Yes. Well... That's true. Ever wondered why?
1: Uh, and remember, remember the Hindus' vision of the cosmos. Oh yes, the turtle the, standing there. Turtle. The turtle was carrying everything on his back. The four elephants that on. Uh
0: huh. the rest. Well, of, uh, all right. If we go back to Van Flanderen's model, which is 66 million years ago, where it was a hell of a war using t- weapons that could destroy whole planets, and then one was blown to. Kingdom Come in the asteroid belt, leaving a huge number of, of pieces, debris, flying in all kinds of orbits. Most of them escaped. Some of them were trapped by the sun. They're, you know, in, in, in the belt. They're in the uh, looping orbits, the Amor and Aton uh, asteroids, etc., uh, and the Apollo asteroids. I believe that a later civilization harvesting the resources of the exploded planet developing its own space program decided to colonize this destroyed solar system by building on these ancient fragments of the exploded planet, which would have all the resources of the planet was blown to kingdom come, but basically no gravity fields. So you could reshape, remodel, drill, mine. use solar. in other words, all the stuff we're talking about doing now was done millions of years ago after the big conflagration And the reason you're seeing this kind of underlying geometry, symmetry, is because these were, like, uh, Didymos is not hollow through and through. Or as I can demonstrate tonight, the Dimorphos was hollow through and through. It was obviously a ship. Didymos is an asteroid with artificial stuff built on top. Most of it now eroded away. That's why we see the geometry in the shadows near the so-called North Pole. But there's so much of it that a lot of it is left and and both objects probably, if they were set up like I think they were as time capsules, as treasure places for us to go and figure out who the hell we are, both of them were carefully put in orbit around each other as a waiting receptacle for us or our ancestors or our descendants to find, depending upon when we got back to space in a big way again and as I said, NASA publicly, very dramatically blew this damn thing up. You know, Richard, it's Richard, I,
2: I, yes. I, I, I got to cut in. I'm sorry. I, this has been like just killing me. So the video that Richard was talking about, folks, um, uh, Demos, Richard, when I was watching the video again and you were speaking, the first thing that entered my mind, especially when uh, Ron started the talk, was rendezvous with Rama and Arthur C. Clarke and mm. the big... It, it just hit me, and now you guys are coming right to it. And I, I, could some of these ancient spaceships, like you say, be turtles or pillars holding up an entire internal world or some sort of garden that's, you know, in inter- I mean, I know this is a crazy Well, remember concept. one of those
0: epic um, uh, Star Trek episodes of, uh, you know, the original Star Trek series. But the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. That came directly from an engineer who worked for the General Electric Corporation back in the 1960s, known as Danridge Cole, who was the first serious scientist engineer to propose very elaborately, including a wonderful coffee table kind of book, that the human race should go out, hollow out asteroids, make them into rotating habitats, spin them for gravity. You would live on the inside, and then ultimately, when technology evolved far enough, Think of nuclear physics, nuclear fusion, uh, et cetera. You could send these as seed ships to other star systems with people living for generations off the resources of this massive artificial world that have been hollowed out. That basically you'd be surrounded by resources with proper recycling that you could live for hundreds of generations, if not thousands. Moving moving between stars at well below the speed of light.
1: Richard, this is an intriguing idea that an aggressive uh, race could take the rubble of a planet that they destroyed and and create a habitat. And uh, it's interesting, we never talk about a very important uh, heavenly body, or you might call it hellish body, and that's Eris, the planetoid. That's the size of, uh, about the size of Pluto. And Eris in mythology Is uh, the goddess of Disharmony and in some people's uh, uh, Legends The wife of Lucifer And that's something that we should investigate I discovered it uh, You know, studying uh, What's it, back uh, Starry Night Backyard years ago I just hit it and I looked at it and said Thank God that looks like a planet It's a small planetoid, we should do a show On Eris and investigate that thing Because it could be the the object that well, you're discussing.
0: We all, well, there's more than one. The thing is that we don't have much data on Eris. We have tons of good data now on Pluto. We know that it was, uh, you know, re- repurposed on the surface. There's all kinds of ancient archaeologies, geometry, things split open. There's an atmosphere. There's there's heat inside. Where's that coming from? Um, but we we almost have nothing on Eris because nothing has been close enough to see it, other than its point of light, except for its orbit. There's a lot of objects in the Kuiper belt that have weird orbits. In fact, there's one, I forget the name offhand, that none of the mainstream guys can figure out under any kind of celestial mechanics how it could have arrived in the orbit that it's in. Because, but course, it's not
1: the Kuiper belt. Er- Eris
0: is in our solar system. Well, anything beyond yeah. Pluto yeah, yeah, is Eris the Kuiper is belt. belt. Yeah, Eris yeah, is the main belt. No, Eris is part of the Kuiper belt. You're thinking of uh, Ceres.
3: Yeah, Ceres is main belt. Yeah. yeah, main belt. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah I, uh, uh, Eris is in the in the Kuiper belt, and it's I'm almost. Just saying, i just we're
3: missing, Go ahead. Well, we're. Uh, I don't like to leave angles out. We're missing an well, angle here.
0: May, may I correct something? Yeah, go
3: ahead. It's
1: yeah. trans Neptunian object. Yeah, so it's it was, in the Kuiper it,
0: belt. Anything? No, the Kuiper belt, belt is No, ourselves. no, no. Anything beyond Pluto is in the Kuiper belt. Well, Neptune is inside Pluto. Well, it or at the moment, sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Remember, Pluto is in this wildly eccentric orbit for you know planets, where it comes inside the orbit of Neptune. But anything beyond Neptune is basically the Kuiper Belt until you get to the Oort cloud, which I don't think exists. But that's a whole other conversation. Okay. So, Ron, you okay, were what to say think are mi-
3: yeah, what I think we're missing is that uh, the, uh, they could have been a space-based civilization that settled down here i'm not talking about the in- ones initially that although it could have involved the ones that uh were in the war that left those battered uh, wrecks floating around out there if you have a uh ship whether it's a warship or a scout ship or anything else there'll be another larger vessel not necessarily as fast uh that will be a supply ship and the only, the only sci-fi franchise that ever embraced that was, in fact, the original, mostly the original Battlestar Galactica. Uh, they always had that. You know, They worried just as much about their supply ships as they did about their warships. And well, again, we even... have
0: to be very careful extrapolating Earth models into a space civilization. Because once you introduce the idea of hyperdimensional physics and the torsion field, You don't have to mine anything. You make it out of empty space. You know, you basically construct particles from virtual reality.
3: Yeah, maybe.
0: Any size, any form, any shape, because you have infinite energy and you have infinite access to hyper dimensions. So the idea of mining, the 19th century idea of mining something is kind of archaic and obsolete. And we're at the top of the hour. So I'm going to cut everybody off nicely and say that this rather spirited discussion is going to continue when we come back. Um, You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we're definitely in the next uh, 30, no, not 30 minutes, three minutes are definitely going to return. And welcome back, everyone. On this Sunday night, October 16th, 2022, we're discussing how did we get here? And did NASA just perform an experiment either wittingly with cover stories galore or unwittingly with cover stories kind of post-impact that really have penetrated two levels of the lie we've been living for the last 50 years? which is that, A, we're not alone, B, we've had no extraordinary ancient high-level civilizations in the solar system except us, ever, and B, we're not heirs to an extraordinary legacy that most of us not only don't even understand is out there, but we've been deliberately kept away from it by NASA for over half a century. These ideas all came together in the DART Experiment, Because the DART spacecraft, 1,200 pounds, hitting Dimorphos, the little guy, 600 feet across at over 14,000 miles an hour, created an extraordinary, stunning, overwhelming detonation of extraordinary energies. And NASA has now gone to great lengths in their PR efforts to try to explain away <clears throat> what really happened. And we'll get into that momentarily. The other idea is that what NASA did, again, either deliberately or inadvertently, it destroyed a time capsule set up for a future generation of humanity that would develop spaceflight, be able to go out into the asteroid belt, rendezvous with something like Dimorphos and Didymos, go inside and find out who we really are. Returning to our conversation, gentlemen, Richard, Ron, go for it.
3: Yeah, uh, I I wanted to clarify two things uh, and then I'll wait for something else for me to get outraged about. Uh, First off, so that it doesn't show up on Twitter, (laughs) uh, Deimos is not 30,000 miles from Mars. It's 20,000 kilometers. Okay. Yeah, okay. Phobos is 5,000 miles and change, and, and Deimos is 10,000 miles and change. And they are clearly the big prizes, at least as far as I'm concerned. You know, ever since Shlovsky back in the 50s, the, uh, uh, it was perceived that Phobos had to be hollow, and that starts this whole thing. And you've got the same kind of thing. You've got a pairing. You've got a little one and a big one. And Deimos looks like one of those big ship things that we, in the asteroid belt, apparently. It's got that same – turns out to have that same top sort of shape. They call it a top, so what are we going to do? Uh, well, Deimos uh, looks
0: more like a squished hamburger. I mean, that was what struck me, uh, Andrew, is the symmetry. Yes, yes. It's kind of like a, a very bloated flying saucer.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and
3: it's, a li- well, it's apparently got a little more depth than that than we thought from the pictures we've seen before, I guess. Um,
0: well, I think, yes. I, I, I think Shushenko did some um, um, geographic uh, reorganization and allowed, uh, and allowed for the high angle that we came into the plane of the system and so gave us a more rectified equatorial view. Uh, and he may have used some of the post-impact uh, data from the uh, – like Chia Cube uh, Cube satellite to generate that kind of uh, uh, three-dimensional geometry. But, yeah, I mean, when you see the movie, Mm. which is my item number three, this is the official NASA approach and recession movie, as you go whipping around very close, like 30 miles away, you can see it's a squished hamburger, particularly in some of the, the middle frames. You know, we'll get better data maybe someday in fact, that's probably a good entry point. Why don't we, you know, let me serve up the next level of, of um, impossible things before breakfast, and then we can all have fun arguing about them. Okay?
1: Okay. Uh, uh, can I say something uh, before you go there? Yeah, sure, Robert. Please. Yeah, something. My, my intuition is really pulling me back to Eris. I'd like to say Eris is the ninth most, most massive object in the solar system. It has a moon named dysnomia. And everything mm-hmm. about this planetoid has been named by NASA with really negative, negative connotations, uh, starting Dis- with Eris. No, wow, dysnomia. Dysnomia,
0: yeah. yeah so it has she showed up at a wedding, and she wasn't supposed to come and cause great discord and all that, I think.
3: Yeah. And, this, she, and she stole the silverware. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> her, her mother, <laughs> Eris,
1: of course, is uh, the goddess of disharmony. So. And, discord.
3: Discord, disharmony? I'm a, I'm a Discordian, long-time and, um, follower. Well, look,
5: if, if, and if,
0: Wilson, if, if, yeah. if NASA at some deep metaphysical ritual level is trying to be very Emily Dickinson, you know, tell off the truth but tell it slant, then the yeah. names they attach to this, like Didymos and Dimorphos, are very telling at a higher level. We just have to figure out the code and decode what the metaphors are trying to tell us without them coming right out and saying it.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: And uh, its size
1: is about uh, uh, 1,400 miles. Yeah, about the same size as Pluto. In fact, it's slightly bigger than Pluto. Yes, slightly bigger than Pluto. So this is not an insignificant object.
2: Guys, speaking of of Pluto, um, one of the moons of Pluto has a didymos like shape as well, that sort of squishy flying saucer hamburger hamburger look again is 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 this a model
0: oh those look like spaceships yeah when when uh new horizons flew by it's easy to tell the real big guys from the from the spaceships that were parked again so we go and go inside and find the goodies the question is who's finding the goodies and why don't the rest
2: of us even know it exists richard is there any way to tell from I mean, when I'm looking at your number four in the the Dart Lycia Cube post-impact nebula, is there any way to measure what might have been inside of Didymos? And, and, well, uh, see, that's then- what
0: I wanted our exquisite sketch artist to do. But he's too busy working for the mouse, so he couldn't do it this week. But what, I, wanted, to- but, but what I want <laughs> you to all look at now, let, let us go to the number Um, And let me get the proper number up here. This is number four. Okay. This is, uh, again, a guy named Schmaus, which I found interesting. Simon Schmaus or Simeon Schmaus, uh, citizen scientist, took the NASA data and the Italian data. This is from the Italian, uh, you know, CubeSat and did an exquisite job showing the extraordinary nebula created after impact. And this was just taken by uh Acube probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes after impact and when it was well past the system on the other side from the approach images that they took going in. And what I see is what would happen if uh, Dimorphos was a hollow ship-like object. Think of it as a big container ship. Cause it's actual size of 600 feet container ships can go all the way up to 1200 feet. So it's a kind of a modest container ship, like the one you went out and touched on the, uh, yeah. in the, in the bay the other day we were talking about. And yeah. if you, if you take something and blow it up inside, and then you take a series of still images of the expansion of the interior bulkheads and corridors and rooms and passageways and tunneling that's what you see look at all that three dimensional rectilinear cubicle geometry it's like it was the interior <clears throat> warren of cubicles and passageways and tunnels blown up on a multi mile scale and frozen by the picture do you see you know, the Richard
2: you
0: in you, in the picture? picture? Yeah. In that
1: picture. In this picture. remember last week I talked about the, the false color that NASA used that left a patina of material on uh didymus. In this one it's blue. Look at the look at the uh the shell yeah. of material that's been yep. left on uh, Didymus. Mm-hmm. And now it's colored in blue, it looks like a big thick a thick uh coating of a blue 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 or blue goo well it's we central. have we
0: have no, no idea what we room. have no there's idea what's causing we, we don't know what's causing well, the colors the colors are exactly they just
3: inverted the image
0: the red is it's probably the color's, important. the color's
1: not important it's the material that it represents and if you look mm-hmm. at the central explosive part of the remnants of dimorphous up in the upper left hand corner at the yep. 11 o'clock position you see that same color uh color coded blue So there have to be several types of material uh, copiously encased in that thing.
0: Well, yeah, if if we are assuming that the color Mm -hmm. corresponds to resonant fluorescent lines or emission, something at high temperature, which is emitting energy, it's not reflecting sunlight, it's literally been energized by the extraordinary release of energy with the impact on uh, dimorphos. And, Ron, you were going to say something.
3: Yeah, well... I yes I was and I will but the uh, yeah the blue is the color of uh, Cherenkov radiation so it's uh, you know it's, it may be intentional or not but I, I'm not that one of the easiest ways to tell if a picture has been messed with is to invert it uh, and look at at the negative form.
0: Yeah, I do and that in my it, last item for tonight with one. It's
3: self-explanatory if somebody tra- ever tries it. Yeah, but I wanted to say one thing, Richard. You said earlier that we can't uh, presume to know about these, uh, the motives, et cetera, of these other civilizations that may have interacted. And yet you, ha- you carry the premise that all civilizations or, or technical societies develop at the same pace and through the same steps it's quite possible that a lot of the stuff left behind would be useless to us, not because we don't understand the physics, but because it was in a different direction. It happens. You know, it's like the Romans had a cement.
0: What what, what do you mean by direction? Give me an Uh, example. I'm
3: about to. Uh, Romans had a cement, which was different from but equivalent to the cement that was used in ancient Egypt. And we... They're much stronger, and they grow stronger with age instead of weaker, like uh, the modern cement does. And we didn't we didn't know until just a few years ago why that happened. Nobody could figure it out. And this was the Romans who we were arguably technically much more advanced than the Romans, even a hundred years ago. Yeah, we but were. do we know that the uh,
0: Romans invented it themselves, or did they get it from an ancient source like Sam Asmonogitch? Remember, has found this well, extraordinary. <laughs> Cement in his pyramids in Bosnia, and it's much stronger than contemporary cements. And again, I think we're looking at well, then it's heritage, the same kind
3: because heritage technology. Yes. No, it's yeah. This is but this is just chemistry, and anyone could stumble into it at any stage. Right. Because they were their 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 knowledge of chemistry was advanced enough. What gave them the idea? I don't know. If it's an if it's a thing, if it's a mechanism, or a you know, or some. Chain of events that you can say uh, they got it from somewhere else. It but in could, the case of this, it, it could—you it could, it could know a, what it is? It I'll could,
0: give you the secret. It could be a sacred scroll handed down information in the priesthood, keep secret and only keep it in your guild and never tell anybody yeah. how
3: you do it. Yeah, guild secret is fair, but it's—you know what it is? Salt water. That was normally thought to be a contaminant that would cause problems, but by mixing in a certain amount of salt water. Uh, you start this secondary chemical reaction after the cement dries, and it makes it harder and stickier than it was before. And but it took us. Yeah, you know, Sam you know, what, has been on the show.
0: Sam has been on the show talking about how he's given samples of this concrete in Bosnia to you know mm-hmm. geopolymer people and concrete people and all that, and they've attested yes, it's better than anything we're currently producing, and they back engineered it, and they now know how to produce it
3: with salt water.
0: I don't remember the details. Okay, I just remember no, I details. don't
3: either, but it has to be the same thing. That's where they got it.
0: One with it got pan. Okay, let me so we're it, we're, yeah. we're going
3: to run out of time here and I
0: want to prove my point that these things are artificial. So if you'll let me go to the numbers, item number 4 <laughs> shows the extraordinary energy released, which NASA did not expect, and Andrew this extraordinary geometry just minutes after the explosion which looks to me like an expansion, kind of like the inflation model of the universe that some cosmologists talked about many years ago, where you take a certain geometry and then you expand it at a furious speed, but it maintains its internal shape, its internal morphology. It looks to me like we're expanding the interior hollowed out compartmentalized geometry, the ship-like geometry of dimorphos, i.e., like an aircraft carrier or merchant ship here on Earth. Okay, you with me? Yeah. Okay. Item number five. This is the geometry of how they did it. They smashed the dark spacecraft, which is the big guy at the bottom of the, of the graphic, into dimorphos, which is coming around in the opposite direction, head-on collision. And the collision is supposed to imparted something between 4,000 and 6,000 pounds of TNT equivalent kinetic energy okay which sounds like a lot and on earth it can destroy a city block but on the order of asteroids you know huge mountains orbiting each other the angular momentum and the masses and all that are such that they really estimated that they would maybe change the velocity of dimorphos to where it would assume a slightly smaller and therefore faster orbit uh, by 71 seconds The outer range that I saw published was like 10 minutes. What they got was 33 minutes. Now, where do I get 33? They are saying 32, but that covers a plus or minus two minutes in their error bars, so it's really, in the mid-range, 33. Why is that important? Because they hit this sucker exactly when the Didymo system was at minus 33 degrees and change on the Earth's celestial uh, coordinate system of so-called declination and right ascension. It was at minus 33 in the Southern Hemisphere, tracking north in the constellation of Lepus, which, as Georgia told us last weekend, was, in fact, a hare, which was used in a lot of sacrificial ceremonies. So, Robert, we're building on these kind of metaphorical inner layers that they don't tell us about. Oh, and in Washington, it occurred, the impact occurred when the Didymo system was seven tetrahedral degrees above the southern horizon. The numbers are very intriguing and do not look accidental. For one thing, how could you decide to smash into something at minus 33 and then have the actual period change by 33 minutes that would imply you knew exactly the masses the energies the densities and you had done all your calculations and you knew what you were going to do was going to trigger the release of enough energy to change Dimorphos' orbit by that precise ritual amount and number six again is a different processing of the uh, uh, dual image that uh, Andrew and I've been talking about, number seven is where the the kind of heart of how we now know that Dimorphos was a spaceship comes from. Click on that. This is a comparison of the old period of Dimorphos orbiting Didymos on the left, uh, 11 hours 55 minutes, and then the new period, 11 hours 23 minutes. Okay. Now, there's a very simple, here's where the math comes in, a very simple equation for what happens when you hit one object with another object. It's called kinetic energy. And the, there are two equations. One is F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration, where you can invert that equation and you can get the mass <clears throat> from the acceleration and the force you apply. And the other is the kinetic energy, one half mb squared. The important part there is the square, because the amount of energy you deliver in a big pinball machine like the solar system when you smash objects together depends to a first order on their mass, but much more important because it's the square of their velocity. And this thing was moving at 4.1 miles per second, which is over 25 thousand feet per second and explosions tnt and whatever they have blast waves that are on the order of nine thousand feet per second so this thing delivered an extraordinary amount of energy into a system in a head-on collision even then what they got the effects they got so exceeded by a factor of three their previously published estimate of the 10 minute uh, change in orbit. I mean, they're claiming now that they had actually estimated 30 minutes. I have not seen that published anywhere that they pulled out of their, you know, what at that press conference, because nowhere was it ever written down. They could get a 30 minute change, which was three times their best estimate before. So what does that do in terms of those, those equations? Well, since none of the factors that we know Uh, have changed. In other words, you know the mass of the spacecraft, you know the velocity, you know the energy that you're imparting when you hit something. The fact that they got a three times bigger result in the equation, it means that the mass of dimorphos had to be one third as much as they were estimating. This is crucial. They were off by a factor of three, if we believe the numbers from what they were estimating. Now, where did their estimate come from? You'll see in these published papers, pre-impact, that they estimated that Dimorphos and Didymos were basically chips off the same block. They were made of the same stuff. They were either rocky asteroids, meaning they were solid and they had a certain density, or they were rubble piles and they had the same density, but made of big boulders and big blocks all kind of smushed together, held together under gravity, not tension chemical tension between the molecules of the rock. And so when you smash those objects, they both basically were supposed to have the same density, which was 2.7 grams per cubic centimeter. Water has a density of one. So they were almost three times more dense in these pre-impact NASA estimates based on lots of asteroid data, lots of observations, other missions, whatever, they assumed that they were, that both objects, big one and small one, had that density of 2.7 grams per cubic centimeter. However, because we only have from their orbit around each other, a total mass for the system, which was billions and billions and billions of tons, we do not have a separate mass for Didymos or Dimorphos separately separately. That would come from the impact. So again, following really simple, simple high school physics, they got three times the effect that they expected. Well, that would say that the density, given that we now have the size, the density of dimorphose had to be one third of 2.7 grams per cubic centimeter. And that puts us down at about 0.75 Here's the uh, punchline, and that's in the range of hollow buildings with, with rooms or ships with compartments or aircraft carriers with hangars, whatever. In other words, the very extraordinary change of energy imparted to Dimorphos proves, because of the density, that this object was not an asteroid, not a rubble pile of asteroid-type stuff but basically a constructed, artificially compartmentalized ship with a density of 0.75 grams per cubic centimeter, i.e. it was an artificial ship, and the numbers, NASA's own numbers, prove it.
1: Richard, uh, this is an interesting uh, thing you've brought up in comparing the density of Dimorphos to uh, water, Because my impression, though I didn't express it uh, when I described what I saw, was that something had been liquefied and that that goo on the the residue that's on um, Didymus and then the streams of matter, something got liquidated. And there must have been a tremendous amount of heat in that impact. So I think there's a case to be made that this uh, object was full of some uh, liquid of some sort.
0: Well, it could have been water. Remember, if you're dealing with a spaceship, Mm -hmm. one of the things you have to carry with you is consumable, right? Water. And water, it
1: would be a source of fuel if you separate the water into the oxygen
0: and the hydrogen. No, 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 no. Stop thinking rock. We're talking hyperdimensional physics. We're talking torsion fields. We're talking anti-gravity. We're not talking rockets. No. But human beings for millions of years have not been redesigned. We still need to breathe. We still need to drink. We still need to eat. So we're talking about internal sources of water for the crew or the the personnel and foodstuffs, forests, whatever ecosystem was inside these ships because they're basically little mini worlds, more likely Didymos than Dimorphos. Dimorphos looks to me like a big tramp steamer, 600 feet with whatever volume is, but because of the impact and the energies and the change of period, this is crucial. This is the numbers. Dr. Eddington, these are the numbers that we have to go on to change it by a factor of three. The density had to be down by a factor of three, and that makes it an artificial construct, not a natural asteroid.
5: Well, that's if
1: we assume that the entity that created it is humanoid and organic, if it's uh, robotic or uh, AI.
0: Remember, our model is that this is all about the family, the human family, which is much, much, much more ancient than anybody has even dared imagine. And in terms of the war, I think the war was a civil war. Where do I get that idea? One is the biggest fights are in families. Keith knows that for, you know, full well. And in the terms of the human race, what are we doing to each other right now? What's the whole East versus West, Putin versus Biden, et cetera. It's within the human family. So the worst fights are family. So I've been looking at this as a civil war. And then you go all the way back to Genesis. And that appears to have been a civil war between God and his angels and the devil and his cohorts, but the same fandamily.
3: Same thing in the Nordic myths. Yeah, you can, yep. uh, you can find that in all of them. Uh, so this is kind of a setup question for you, because <laughs> I know you've read as many of those uh, technical papers <laughs> as I have. Uh, one of the things they should have mentioned, uh, it's number one on the list of objectives, in every single coverage of, you know, projection as to what they were going to do when they got there, was determine the mass of dimorphos. Well, that's... I haven't seen
0: a published number. They assume, because at the press conference, the only thing they talked about, besides giggling and chortling and acting, Andrew almost obscenely happy that what they've done and I'm cringing because I know what they've really done. And like you, it's like the the greatest sin and travesty and, and heresy you can imagine to destroy your heritage and be giggling about it. And the only thing I can attribute is that those people that we see have no idea what they have really done. They bought the standard model. They're good little robots, good little soldiers. They think they're doing something good and they're actually doing something very evil, which is destroying the link to who we really are and what we're doing in this place. Be that as it may, the only number they would again and again reiterate was the change of period. They said all the other things that they should be able to figure out was still a work in progress. And for that, I think they were telling the absolute truth, because in their model, what I've just described is absolutely effing impossible. Impossible. And they'll never get there. Seconds. They will never get there. Anyway. I'd are, like to
3: start a Deadpool.
0: We are at the... the uh... well, hang on. We have to do this after the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning, Ron Gerbron, Robert Morningstar, Andrew Curry, Keith Laney. Keith Laney. Keith Morgan. Keith Laney must be thinking about us. you are listening. Keith Morgan is there behind the scenes running dials and chipping in with very intriguing insights. That thing on uh, Didymos, very provocative. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
4: Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com.
0: back, everyone, on this uh, Sunday night, October 16th, 2022. My guests this morning and I are discussing a radical, extraordinary, mind-blowing, and still totally covered up by NASA hypothesis, which I hope I have now demonstrated. We basically have confirmed NASA's own numbers, taking their pre-impact published densities for Dimorphos and Didymos and the energy imparted by the approaching and then impacting 1,200-pound DART spacecraft and the incredible change of orbital period from 11 hours, 55 minutes, a whisker under 12 hours. By the way, uh, we'll get in the next few minutes into why the orbit is not 12 hours. I mean, wouldn't you think the ancients would be sophisticated enough and precise enough that if they meant 12 They would have left us 12. Well, there's a clue in the fact that it was not 12 anymore. It was 1155. And Ron, you're going to remind me to get into that when we come back. The other thing is, if you take all those parts of the equation and know that the only variable in order to get that incredible orbit change from 1155 down to 1123 or 24 if it uh, is what I think 33-minute difference. That implies, implacably, there's no wiggle room here, that the density of dimorphos was not the same as didymos. In fact, it reduces the density by a factor of three to keep the mass the same in that equation. And that gives us the densities of artificial buildings or giant ship's like Nimitz-class aircraft carriers that we build with big empty volume spaces like hangar decks here on Earth. In other words, by NASA's own numbers, they smashed into an ancient spaceship. Why would they do that? Unless they didn't know. Okay, we're all back. Uh, who wants to go first and tear me apart? I would. Go for it.
2: Richard, do we have any chemical analysis of these streamers that are vomiting out in the space? Or that oh, what an
0: incredibly prescient question. Um, I have tasked Chandra Wickrama Singh behind the scenes to try to reach some of his compatriots with yeah. Webb that was doing stunning real-time monitoring and um you know spectroscopic analysis of all the stuff we see coming out in that astonishing picture and i'm trying to get him on for next weekend but i need to be able he was he had to go on vacation his wife insisted you know how that is right andrew And, (laughs) and so he was unable to complete his mission now that he's back um uh he'll have a week to try to get hold of somebody that seems to be the easiest thing for NASA to tell us, what yeah. all, what was all the stuff that came out, right? They yeah. had the perfect spacecraft for the perfect instrumentation, the perfect view. They haven't said a word, nothing, zip, nada, because if this really was a spaceship, then we should see all kinds of organic materials, including, Robert, a lot of water, coming out of something which basically held hundreds of people at one time, if not more.
2: Richard, is there any way that we could conduct our own experiment, like put some sort of water and life in a container and blow it up in a vacuum and see what it would look like? Is there, is there any way to do yeah, something like that? Yeah, but
0: nobody would believe it. You know, All we have to do is get the, yeah. get the data declassified, because I imagine there are amateurs all over the world, amateur astronomers, who have done something like this by themselves because it was so available to their technology. Right. And I'm just, through my network of amateur astronomers, citizen scientists, I am pursuing quietly behind the scenes, tracking down those people. But obviously I don't want to identify them on the air because then you know who's going to swoop in and basically, you know, hold up a badge and say national security, you can't say a word. So we need to keep them kind of off the books until I get to the right people but we're working on that behind the scenes
2: yeah and i just andrew, want to
0: finish.
2: andrew
1: don't oh. blow up things in your backyard <laughs> no
0: show. i would not do that i don't think andrew was going to do that you know he has a young son does yeah. want to, he does not want to uh uh you know teach the wrong lesson to your young son
3: so oh you know, well, get we, to only see his family on visiting days that's the jail.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, Halloween is Halloween is coming up at the fire. So anyway,
3: so, someone please take uh, a
0: take a long, uh, you know, sword and poke a hole in my model, because to me the numbers are conclusive, because you can't make mass vanish.
3: No, I just wanted to say I want before the break. I want to set up Deadpool. A Deadpool. It's hypothetical. Tell us. Tell, us, a, what a, no prize tell anyway. us Tell
0: us what a Deadpool is, please.
3: Oh, I thought everybody had seen had seen that annoying movie with uh, Ryan. No, Reynolds. I've deliberately it, not but, seen the an annoying movie. Well, that yeah. They're, usually they're a, they're a time frame thing. It's just it's a lottery. It's like people picking um, uh, who's going to win the Super Bowl or something like that. Okay. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, this regards how much of uh, Dimorphos is left. See, in my mind, there's a little less than 25 percent of the hull still there.
5: Okay, and that awesome. would be
3: my that would be my guess. And if somebody wants to say no, 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 it's all there, or it's all gone, or something like that, you know, they can they can weigh in and get bragging rights when it when we finally find out. But um, because I, I I had no doubts from before they arrived that it was a uh, ship. And I didn't think it would explode, but I did think it would bust up. And the hull would be the sturdiest part. So uh, I know NASA's model, I believe, was for the uh, structural. They have structural and rubble pile uh, models. And for the structural uh, asteroid model, I guess the uh, uh, front runner would be Hyperion. That's the one that looks like a loofah sponge. Right. You know, with a all those cavities in it, you know, that that would give reinforcement and all that other yeah, stuff. Yeah, would, definitely. But, Hyperion
0: seems to be an ancient, very barred ship. Yeah. yeah as does, uh, as does Iapetus. Remember the bulbs around Iapetus. If you whittle away a lot of Iapetus, uh, it, what is, did it used to look like? Maybe Banu or Ryugu or Diamorphos or, or uh, Didymos and how much is, of, is real, how much is natural? And how much is built up stuff like Trantor on top of an ordinary, you know, planetary moon-sized body? Uh, um, Iapetus yeah. is 900 miles across.
1: By the uh, way, mass does disappear if it turns into energy. And uh, just a minor note on Latin. The I in Latin is pronounced like a J. So Iapetus or Japetus.
0: I like Iapetus okay anyway Steelers yeah. choice anyway
3: uh <laughs> yeah um, yeah regional pronunciation yes anyway I'll, I'll, um, okay I'll, I'll, I'll so do we it. want
0: do we want to get to the next part because the next part gets really interesting and that's where go. go ahead no i said let's go okay get to the yeah. item number eight this is a photograph that was taken by an amateur and all the data is on the thing you just click on it and and you click on it, it only goes once, but all the data is there. Four guys from Chile, because remember, this was overhead in Chile because it was in the southern hemisphere of the Earth, only uh, plus seven from Washington. Um, Altitude, 42.5 degrees. Phase angle, 55 degrees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, All the data is on those little data blocks. What you want to focus on is the center object. This is a Time lapse image taken of Didymos the system uh two days after impact, and you can see in the lower right hand corner what they did is they did a little inset of the core brightness. They were very clever. they basically turned their photograph, which is on the left, into a uh, positive, and then they did what's called solarization, where they assign colors to brightness, so the colors are not real the colors are just arbitrary. But what you want to do is look at the geometry. And actually, it's better if you look at number nine, because what I instantly realized was, oh, my God, look at that. On the left, remember the Tonga explosion, the weird underwater volcanic explosion, which released more energy than any underwater volcano in the history of the Earth and uh, sent plumes up into the almost near space and shock waves around the world for days and all that. Um, basically was a cube. I'm intrigued with cubes because cubes, as you can see in the center panel, are double tetrahedrons, which are signatures of the physics. Going from a higher dimension into three-dimensional reality, you get a cube initially because you have two conjoined tetrahedrons making up the form. The object on the right is an enlargement of the post-impact Didymo system two days after impact by the amateur astronomers in Chile, and the cloud of dust that had now moved out several hundred miles from the center of the teeny tiny dynamo system, which is smaller on the scale than one of those pixels, it was a cubical shape. Which takes us to number ten. Why is number ten interesting? Because all over the solar system, on the moon on Phobos, on Mars, on the outer moons of Jupiter and Saturn, and anywhere where we see impact craters, there's been this incredible mystery for decades, if not a century or more. There's a huge number of impact craters that are not circular, like you'll see little circular craters on this scale, but they're actually geometric. They are six-sided. And I believe it's because they're creation involved the use of hyperdimensional torsion field energy i.e they may not be ordinary impacts they may be the signature ancient use of a hyperdimensional weapon which literally pulls energy from hyperspace into 3d and blows things to kingdom come and i believe if we now go to Item number um, 11. This is now taken by another amateur group also in Chile. All the good views were in Chile. This was taken three days after impact. And you can begin to see in this black and white image, the little streaky things are time um, lapse stars because remember the comet, the comet, the, the asteroid is moving relative to the star field because the star field is the background and the comet is or the comet. The, I keep saying it because of that damn tail. The asteroid, which we turn into with this impact into a comet, um, is moving against the star field. So you have to pick one or the other to have as a point. So the obvious uh, decision here was to pick uh, Didymos to track, and the stars were thereby streaked. So that takes us to the next image, which is the... Uh, Soar telescope, which is in the southern hemisphere, at a major observatory called Cerro Tololo, which is in uh, Chile, South America. Uh, four foot, uh, four meter diameter mirror, twelve feet. Time-lapse exposure. Here, the star streaks are multicolored because they took red, green, and blue, as opposed to a simultaneous color image. And on this scale now, this is 48 hours, about the same as the object that you see item numbers eight and nine. But here, the scale is so much smaller because they're doing a wide angle view. And in the center, you see this weird geometry. And if you look at 13, the geometry on left and right, on left is kind of the raw data, and right is the uh, geometry that I had uh, uh, John Womack uh, uh, putting on on the uh, graphic. And you can see there's an inner and outer tracing of a inner and outer giant tetrahedral geometry like the cube as the energy dissipates collapses to one form or the other one tetrahedron or the other of the dual tetrahedrons and the reason we're seeing it at all is because of all the dust that was produced which scatters sunlight and which creates that extraordinary narrow beam Now the mainstream explanation for the beam is that it's dust particles in the plane of the orbit, which is being streaked out by radiation pressure from the sun. However, if we go back to item number nine and you look at the geometry of the cube, and then you look at the geometry of the double tetrahedron next to it, and then you look at that little fledgling tail you know, a a few hours, this is like a day or so after the, uh, I'm sorry, 48 hours after the beginning, uh, after the impact, you'll see that that streak, the beginning of the longer tail, appears to have a certain geometry with the three-dimensional tetrahedral form. And I'm beginning to suspect that that geometry, when we do it all, you know, kind of in a nice little ball, it will come out at 19.5 degrees from the way the tetrahedron is oriented in space. In other words, it's an energy input, hyperdimensionally powered, exactly like the hyperdimensional signatures we see in the sun, in the earth, in Jupiter, the big volcanoes on Mars, uh, the great dark spot on Neptune, etc., etc., etc. In other words, either deliberately or inadvertently, NASA created the biggest hyper-dimensional energy release in the solar system maybe in millions of years. And then, of course, the question is, why? A, did the folks carrying this out know what they were doing? Or were they conned into it by folks higher up that knew what they were doing and got them to do it as part of a planetary defense cover story? Or are there people inside that understood that if they did this, and they did it by the numbers when the Didymos system was at the right latitude and longitude and right ascension and declination and elevation to earth, that hyperdimensional pulse would have an effect on human consciousness here on earth equivalent to what normal hyperdimensional astrology does every single day, which is why I've got Rick Levine working on the numbers and the alignments and the oppositions and trines and squares and all that. And I'm hoping to have him on the show next Saturday night to tell us what he has found. But my bet is that none of this is accidental. The numbers are too coincidental to be coincidence. I think somebody wanted to do something like create a huge tremor in the force. And Andrew That's why you've been feeling weird.
2: Yep. (laughs) I'm telling you, Richard, especially this last week, but definitely recently. That's the only kind of bracketing I can say. And the only way I can describe this, and and again, this comes from me, so it's my filtration. It's my filters, right? And I'm getting older, and I'm changing, and da-da-da-da-da-da. There's all that. But this feeling I've had, it's like we've entered a completely alien environment, like a whole different landscape when I look out at the at the world, it's the same world, but the feeling that I have in it is is completely alien and when I say that it doesn't i'm not putting a value statement I didn't say that was negative or positive it's just extraordinarily different for me and um my wife has said the same thing like Anna has said the same thing, you know it's just a very strange feeling and it's and the thing about it. Sometimes you know you get an odd feeling about a day, and I know Robert and I talk about this a lot. We all do, right? But this just continues to wash over and over. It just continues to soak in. It's not like switching gears, you know, like a few days later. It just settles in more and more. That's the only way I can describe it. It may sound weird, Richard, but it's it's unsettling. But it's not well, not um, compared
0: to what we're looking at, because I think this was the trigger, and I think somebody designed this under a cover story to be the trigger for this hyperdimensional pulse because remember in the model the physics itself is neutral what happens is who is washed over by this wave of higher dimensional energy information remember i've been saying for many many years this causes the good to get better and the bad to get worse so it's like turning up the gain on an amplifier and, Robert, you're another sensitive. You perceive something so strange and so weird, but in consistency with this model, not unexpected.
1: I know. I, I think there's something um, that um, Andrew and I both have that uh, psychic sense, and so I'm not surprised
0: that it, there is a disturbance in the force. Well, I think I've been said... feeling weird, you know, and yeah. I don't normally – You know, I try to, when you're trying to do science and numbers, you try not to go by what you feel, but what the numbers are telling you. Believe me, everything is going weird. I know people in my life that are being absolutely bonkers, that are acting so out of character, so 180 degrees from the way they normally have acted, that I'm wondering if this is kind of like a CAT scan and revealing that their previous behavior was all an act, and this is revealing who they really are. Without mentioning Well, names. remember
1: the analogy I made last week about balancing a tire or t- balancing yes, a yes, wheel yes, in case yes. the tire. They've just slid. They just slid the, uh, the the lead slug that keeps the wheel in balance. So there is a disturbance in the force. And see, I need see to
0: find it. out from Rick where this occurred in terms of all the geometry, the the spider web of hyperdimensional connections that all these rotating, processing objects. Uh, did because you know what we did when NASA hit this thing it changed its precession and precession forced precession is how you get unlimited energy out of hyperdimensions that's the secret of the magnetic machines um, Steve what's his name um, oh who's the guy in North Carolina um, Stephen Greer he's come out suddenly with four new technologies for accessing hyperdimensional physics They're all forced procession in one way or another. We have never had an experiment where NASA literally changed an orbit of one body orbiting another body. And the reason they didn't do it to a single object is if you do it to a single object, the effect is much less than if you do it to two orbiting objects. And they did one hell of an experiment and got a stunning result that they're frankly their their pr release on what they did it's it's nonsense it's 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 crazy they're basically saying that this the overwhelming energy coming out was because they got a more efficient ejection of rocks from the crater why you can't get thing from nothing in any conventional 3d newtonian model the total energy gives you the total effect the only way way this energy would have disappeared would be if it went into heat. The problem is the efficiency of heat transmission in rock is so minimal. That's why solar collectors work so efficiently, you know, at night as opposed to day, because it takes like hours and hours for the heat to leak through the rock, that the energy conversion into heat inside dimorphos, assuming it was a rock would have been trivial compared to the kinetic energy of the pinball hitting one ball with another. So the idea that some PR idiot wrote the press release without consulting any physicists or any celestial mechanics experts, and basically said, oh, well, the reason the period changed so radically is because it was much more efficient at ejecting rocks. If you know anything about the rocket equation, the reason you want the smallest mass of, of reactants in a rocket, like hydrogen and oxygen, is because you want the lowest molecular weight to accelerate it to a highest velocity. Remember, E equals mb squared, velocity squared. So tossing out big rocks would be incredibly inefficient and would not account for the change of Dimorphos' orbit at all, whereas more energy than they expected and a lower density would. Hey, Richard, I
1: just found out something very interesting. Lepus... The constellation in which this thing occurred is directly south of Orion. Yes,
0: of course. Right uh, next to Canis yeah. major. So they, it
1: looks like they wanted to shoot him in the
0: foot. Well, again, you can, you know, spin the metaphor wherever way, but it's in that part of the, console, uh, of the celestial sphere that has incredible meaning mythologically for humans and who's been tinkering with us and where family went after the war.
1: Well, I think that Orion has an astronomical on Earth and all events on Earth as well. Well,
3: of yeah, of course. Of course. That's astrology. Was anyone else bothered by the trajectory of what we see right after the blast? I mean to me that's that's unlike any any portrayal or anything else of a of a zero G uh zero atmosphere explosion that I've ever seen. I mean this stuff's uh, it's like there was some sort of material or matrix that it was traveling through. You know, so that's that's why I, I that's told That's what Richard I meant, the
0: hollowed rooms and corridors and tunnels, and you simply blow up everything like inflation instantaneously, but you preserve the geometry because there's no air resistance.
3: Yeah, but they show, shouldn't those be straight trajectories instead of those angles Exactly. That, yeah. that is, says
0: you had Reynolds numbers... Which were exceeded in terms of vorticity. How do you get vorticity in a vacuum? You only get vorticity in a gun barrel. Think of Gerald Bull and his big, big, you know, super gun, or that kind of thing. In other words, if you have a artificial object, a ship, with corridors that run from one end of the ship to the other, and they're basically, <laughs> they're, they're, they're basically, if you blow something up inside, they're huge gun barrels for a few microseconds, they will constrain the explosion within the walls, creating enormous vorticity that when the walls go away, the vorticity remains and is frozen and expanding. In in other words, I think, and that's why I wanted you to do a sketch, Andrew. I think we're seeing the internal 3D geometry of Dimorphos, the ship, exploded on a huge scale because of the explosion inside.
2: So you're almost describing it like those, um, oh, in the movie Alien and Aliens, when they brought out the uh, ground plans for the for the um, complex they were in to try to get away from the pursuing aliens. Yes. This is the map. This is the map of the ship. Yes. This is the map.
0: Yes, you're seeing it in three dimensions, and if we if we can take the the like uh, cube images and look at various angles because they went through the system and we got 3D and mapped them in some kind of computer program. We'll be able to reconstruct the interior geometry in those first few minutes before the hyperdimensional effects of the changing momentum of the entire system overtook everything, I think. And you probably hear music in the background. We're at the top of the hour. My guests this morning are Ron Gerbrandt. Andrew Curry and Robert Morningstar, and Keith Morgan is with us in the control room. You're on the other side of midnight. We now have a whole hour to talk about and fight amongst ourselves as to what all this ultimately means. And then we're going to bring up a surprise subject, the Antarctic, because it is related, as you will see. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
4: Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs, $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel, or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 an episode, $0.02 per hour of content. The Other Side of Midnight.com
0: And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight on this now Sunday night, Monday morning. It is officially the 17th of October, 2021, here in the land of enchantment. So, Sunday night, Monday morning, our guests are still with us, our panelists. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask, if you want to join the conversation, if you want to ask us any questions, or if you have some really interesting ideas of your own for what we're seeing, uh, give us a call. Uh, what you want to do is call 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. That way you can join the conversation. I also want to invite any computer graphics folks out there to take this data and do some amazing things with it so we can help out our overworked and overloaded uh, enterprise uh, mission imaging team members who are doing yeoman service, but they they have day jobs, and so they have to do other things too. And the more on this, the merrier, because you may see things that we miss and vice versa. Um, That phone should not be ringing. That is not our – that's probably uh, someone from the other side of the planet who wants to join the conversation, but you have to join 917 889 8802, I have a suspicion who that might be, but I can't pick up the phone right now, so we're going to hang it up. One final thing. To do all this stuff, to keep this show on the air, particularly as we're getting down to crunch time, really requires resources. I know we just went through a, a, a little promo there, but I want to reemphasize that there are two ways that you can support the show. One is you can join Club 19.5. You can recommend... Uh, to uh, your friends, your f- fellows anywhere in the world, it's accessible all over the planet. We're in one hundred and ninety some countries, so they can reach the show anywhere they are on earth, even in the middle of the South Pacific. Uh, we have that little spinning globe and you can see where people have logged in from all over the world um, That's one way you can do it, and you can even give out kind of gifts we're getting close to the end of the year season um, and it would be useful if you were to think ahead and maybe give a, a subscription to the other side of midnight uh, to someone on your Christmas list. That would who them, because as we get through the end of this year and into next year, all you know what is going to hit the Rotating Kitchen appliance. And uh, I, I am not fooling. There's, there are three spacecraft uh, that are going to reach the moon. Two of them are en route. One of them will be launching in less than a month. And it may be launching during the show on Sunday night, the 13th slash 14th, in which case we will be going live. That's going to be a show that night. We're going to devote to all the stuff on the moon that nobody wants to talk about, which either the Artemis uh, cameras can image for us or the capstone camera or the Danuri cameras. There are several, including a polarimeter and polarimeters are gadgets that really look at reflections And you can't have a lot of glass on the moon without there being stunning, documentable, numerical reflections that will show up in the data. And all we have to do is make sure the data is published. So that's the one way you can support the show. The other way is to go to the other side of midnight and in the middle of the top of the main page, the home page, or on the upper left-hand corner, there is basically a donate button. We could use a little cash infusion right now because there are... There are expenses associated with the show. There are certainly expenses in trying to lobby in Washington to get some of this stuff out there in time for it to have an impact on NASA policy or uh, Elon Musk. Uh, we're looking at creating um, a calendar. Uh, some of us have been discussing a seasonal calendar that would put some of these goodies together in a format that would be useful as a Christmas gift that you could give to all the people on your list who think that your interest in this stuff is totally crazy. When they see the images and they see the descriptions and they see the NASA data, their opinion, certainly given what's been going on in the headlines, on the news, all over social media, a lot of it could change. So you could give them a calendar and then stand back and watch the fun. So we need kind of spending money to make some of these longer range projects happen. And I'm telling you, five bucks is amazing. Fifty bucks is fantastic. I had people the other day send us a hundred bucks. You know, I want to thank everyone who has donated to the other side of midnight because it keeps us on the air and things are getting very, very dicey in terms of cash flow and funds because we've lost a few subscribers due to the inflation. That means that you folks that are in better positions economically can take up a little of the slack to keep us in the game for when you know what is going to hit the rotating kitchen appliance. And I must say, given that I'm looking forward now to the Halloween disclosures uh, that are coming that weekend per the Congress and the law that mandates the first, you know, all domain anomaly. Pentagon office annual report on UAPs, UFOs, and other things that go bump in the night. That's supposed to hit that weekend. And the 31st, Halloween, is Monday. And Monday, of course, is the anniversary, that Monday, of uh, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. And given these people's kind of strange dibs on reality, I would not put them past us, past it for them to release this first annual report literally on Halloween. Again, if we're gonna stay in the game, we need a little help. Actually, we need significant help right now because things are becoming very critical. And so I would leave you with a heartfelt plea. If you can help, please do help because otherwise we will literally not be there when the end game finally arrives. So gentlemen, back to our conversation. Um, I won't find out until later and maybe never who that guy was who was calling or person who was calling. But we have laid out some very interesting ideas tonight. Uh, Where would you like to take the conversation next?
1: I'd just like to say something about the dispersion pattern of the material there. Okay. Um, I would have expected the pattern to be different from a kinetic impact on an object that was not... um, symmetrical, and in the strictest sense of the word, I would have expected it to have a greater density in one area and dissipate. But it looks to me like a spherical um, explosion, a spherical dispers- dispersion pattern. Now, a couple of years ago, and we're going to, it's with the subject we're going to discuss later regarding Antarctica, I made the statement that I had seen in my youth on the way to high school in the 1960s a photograph of a nuclear explosion over Antarctica, and you contested that. But I can tell you now that on July 6th of 1962, with President Kennedy's authorization, the United States began detonating the first of five hydrogen bombs over Antarctica. And I've seen the films of those detonations and when those detonations occur in outer space, it's, there's no mushroom. It turns into a star first, and then it dissipates. And uh, this, this uh, dispersion pattern of uh, Didymus reminds me of that, and it's non-Newtonian dispersion as I, as I see it. So I'd just like to say that. And the operation uh, was actually the, the nuclear explosions over Antarctica. They were broadcast live to Australia, And it was called Operation Starfish. And I think it had everything to do with UFOs.
0: Well, hang on a second, because the data I have, Operation Starfish is real. Uh, They were delivered into low Earth orbit by rockets coming up from Johnston Island, which is in the middle of the Pacific. And they were so cataclysmic that they literally tripped circuit breakers because of in Hawaii. This is all a matter of public Uh record. But they were right. not over the Antarctic. They were over uh, because getting to the Antarctic with the Johnson rockets, they did not go into orbit. They were basically ballistic and they wanted to keep them over the South Pacific where they had cameras at Kwajalein and all that. And they could monitor, you know, what was actually happening, because if you don't monitor a test, you know, it's like there's a tree fall in the forest and you, you're seeing isn't isn't there to, to catch it. Does it really fall? You know, a test yeah. without monitoring is pointless. So they had to do it where they were able to monitor the the, uh, the actual results. So I don't think it may have been seen as flashes on the horizon from the Antarctic, but it was not over the Antarctic. It was over the South Pacific from Johnson Island. And that's the first time they realized the incredible power of AMP because they tripped circuit breakers on uh, uh, Honolulu power supplies uh, as far away as Hawaii completely inadvertently. So they had to be above the horizon of Hawaii to be uh, visible to do that because radio waves do not bend, you know, in, in, from straight lines. So it was somewhere over the South Pacific in line of sight from several hundred miles up to the Hawaiian island chain.
1: We'll have to try to get the real coordinates, but it's my suspicion that uh, those five detonations actually are what caused the ozone hole. But that's
0: another story. Okay. I mean, that's a that's a valid hypothesis. Again, it's testable by means of numbers. Um, Ron, I think you had something you wanted to say. Did we lose Ron?
3: No. Oh, yeah. I, I was you... on mute. Sorry. Oh, well, that's all we... Sorry. No, I'm, okay. so I'm here. Um, well, Ron, you're talking about Antarctica, relative to what? The... um. Uh, what Robert just said affirms my suspicions about the um, shape of uh, what we see in those after impact pictures. I'm ve- I'm still very puzzled about that. I, you know, what you say about the internal chambers deflecting things and causing a bunch of new vectors makes uh, perfect sense. But to me, to me, it's something you would think would be mentioned. You know, I mean, by NASA. They go, oh, this is interesting. We we're, we're not sure what caused that happen.
6: They don't
1: want to mention this. That's that's why it's up to us to bring it to public attention.
3: These are things that are not, you know unmentionable. Yeah, yeah, But it's I'm I'm still awaiting the uh, proper connection with Antarctica. I mean, I think it's full of ruins down there, but there's a lot of questions, and I don't know how what they have to do with. Aside from the fact that you could see this little uh DART operation from down there Had you a tel- telescope I don't know what the connection is yet
1: The connection is how things Disperse in outer space Rather than uh Rather than when they're under gravity And um uh, oh. th- But Richard wants to talk about Antarctica later on So we'll return to that And I'll give oh, you some okay. information later About the Russian expedition to Antarctica In 1932 Which we never hear about
0: Okay no, we never hear yeah. about that. That's definitely something we're going to get into.
3: Um, the Ananurvy expedition?
0: Wow. Yep. No, okay, not Ananurvy. Was... Russian.
1: Soviet. Expedition. Oh, Russian. Stalin. I'm sorry. Stalin, yeah, I'm good. Stalin sent some people down there in 1932, and they reported back some fascinating things that got them all sent
3: to a gulag. Well, that's not very good. Huh. No, that's unfortunate. Yeah, it's very typical
1: uh, of Stalin when he didn't like the news that he got to do such things to silence it and not have it heard
3: about it ever again. But I'll
1: tell well, you more. Yeah. Least- okay. Okay.
3: Uh, I'll- we'll all be waiting. And for all those people out there, the most famous spot in Antarctica, other than uh, McMurdo, is probably Lake Vostok, and that was named after the, a Russian whaling ship that got trapped in the ice there a long time, a long, long time ago. And we're probably the first uh, modern folks to set foot on it. Hmm. Interesting. A little, little piece of trivia that Lee as, just laid
1: yeah. out. As long as you brought up Lake Vostok, mm-hmm. the, the Russians bored down two and a half miles into it. And since they did, they have found over 3,500 new species in the waters that they dredged up
0: the, the waters, which have been steel, we think for millions of years from the exactly. upper, from the upper exactly. level of ocean and uh, biology, by the way, there was another story that came out
5: mm-hmm.
0: uh, based on underwater sediments analyzed by I believe the Australians. They found something like a, a set of million year old DNA in some of the sediments off the off the coast of antarctica, and I just briefly I was given that. I was sent that link by one of our uh, uh, colleagues, and I didn't have time to read the details. But that would be the oldest DNA successfully recovered of anything on Earth, as far as I know. There's
1: another strange story that uh, came out of the Russian expeditions into Antarctica during the last 10 years. And it has to do with a group of Russian scientists who went deep, deep into uh, one of those Antarctica caves, ice caves and encountered a creature in, uh, in the water that approached them and they were mesmerized by this creature. And then a tentacle came out and snatched one of the scientists and uh, killed him. And they, well, they, all, they all had to flee in terror. And it gives me a hint that H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's Cthulhu through mythos may have some foundation. Uh, in fact, you know, mm. really strange things. Which, again, we'll talk about it when we get to the Antarctica. And maybe the folks, uh, there's a new link uh, added to Andrew's items there. And it says that some strange things are emerging from the melting ice sheet in Antarctica. So you might run that silently and just take a look at the images that we're going to discuss later on in the program.
0: Yeah, and uh, Keith, if you're, if you're monitoring Skype, I just sent you an image for our Antarctic segment uh, in Skype. Just take that and make that my post number 15, please, if you can. So, Andrew, you're being very, very quiet.
2: Yeah, because you got me looking <laughs> at these <laughs> streamers. and Am
0: I crazy, or is there a three-dimensional modeled
2: yeah. geometry there? This is a floor Absolutely. plan. Floor plan is yeah. the word I was thinking of when yeah. I talked about. The except yeah, except the floor, as floor plan. plan is
0: like side view and plane view. This is like yeah. a perspective, Three, three-dimensional, yeah. expanded, frozen. It's got all kinds of detail, including yeah. width of walls that I would not expect in random, turbulent, whatever.
1: Uh, Richard,
5: yeah,
1: it, excuse me, Andrew, let me just interrupt with this brief uh, news break. Richard, I visited that area in Google Earth recently. Which, and, are, uh, which, which area? This is called Mount Murray, the one you put down there in the uh, in the picture. Oh, oh the one,
0: and, oh, the one uh, yeah, n- number four in Andrew's exposed. section.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's now exposed. It has been, um, it has melted, and you can see a lot more details. It's not covered by ice anymore.
0: Do we have any really? more recent images?
1: I found that when I, that when I traced uh, Admiral Byrd's flight, we had a 1930s animation of his flight path. And then I followed it on Google Earth and I came across these areas uh, that uh, they named really, really strange names. Uh, People might go back a couple of years to the Antarctica programs that we did with uh, the discovery of uh, Turtle Cave, which we'll discuss later. But this is the
3: Asgard Ridge.
1: Yes, and uh, Executive Committee
0: Mountains. (laughs) How about about the Rockefeller Mountains?
1: Yeah, you know, there's... um, there's an area down there that's called Rothschild land. And off the coast of Rothschild land, there seems to be a lot of underwater uh, structures like domes underwater. Mm. Um, really
0: weird stuff is in Antarctica. Good grief, matter, Andrew. Oh, as a matter oh, of fact. All right. Let,
5: let, let, Keith, me, let oh, me do Richard. a couple
0: of housekeeping things. Uh, Go ahead. Keith, are, are you there? Mr. Morgan, are you there? I do not hear Keith. I'm here. Oh, there you are. Okay. Um, I put an image that's going to be important. I'm working on it. Oh, okay. You just just let me know. All right. Yeah. So let me go back to Andrew. Um. Yeah. I'm looking at your number three, not blown up, but like on the screen. Oh, it's astonishing. The symmetry that you saw that I see is just yeah. it's, it's so bla- that's not an asteroid. No no it's it's some i i don't no. think it's a ship either because of the mass and the density i think what they did is they put shells around asteroids for resources but the difference is we didn't hit didymos we hit dimorphos and its density comes out as a ship
2: you, it, you know it, what? go ahead mm-hmm. i i'm studying this um this web of streamers like these there's archways Yes. I, I, There's archways. All right. Every,
0: everybody in- go to number four and just blow it up big screen. Don't look at this on a phone. Look at it on a computer. Look at all that structural three-dimensional. In- and You've got straight lines. You've got right yeah. angles. You've got three-dimensional right angles, meaning it's cubical, and you're looking at a 3D layering. It's not just straight vorticity. No. And, and he, it's not you know, individual
3: um, fragments either; it's chunks no. of, what, of it. No, well, it's something. It's
0: something that will scatter light, and that's usually small stuff. in Terms of sunlight, you're not going to see big stuff. You're going to see the tiny
6: stuff. But there's such geometry.
2: Yeah. And Jonathan
6: Wellmack had a uh, post uh, last time, and it looked like a crater. So zoomed in on it and then you could see all of this and
0: by the way john, structure was supposed to, I just remember, john was supposed to be with us tonight why didn't why isn't he called in since my memory is is failing can you find it try to find womack and get him in the conversation
6: sure yeah. Well, i was saying that it that that was a graphic from the oblivion movie and you couldn't tell it but it looks like a it looks like a crater until you zoom in, and then you see all of the structure oh,
3: yeah. that yeah. made up
6: the stadium that it was. Yep, yep. And same thing's yeah, de- going on here with this didymos. Yeah. You know, you Robert. The more
0: I, the more I look at your your uh, uh, didymos color, you know, pay attention to the color. Look at how symmetrical the blue shell is. Yeah, and yeah. look That's at how, how and look how it's opposite the uh, detonation. Look you're at, the, look, at around, look look at the, hang on, hang on, look at the straight edge geometry of Didymos, all right? Look at the straight edge geometry of the overexposed explosion of the center of dimorphos. and the fact that the blue arc is exactly aligned opposite the uh, explosion point. Yes, I think that's telling us something about shielding and energy transmitted through object didymos as opposed to around it because didymos is is kind of like it's it it's it, 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 it provides a shadow blast area where there's like a, a safe zone behind it yeah
1: similar to your theory about the the uh the shell around the moon
0: i'm not it may be and it may not i don't know i'm just to me blue in, in indicates high-energy ionization. So what would be ionized in the shadow away from the explosion? Does it have to do with with how something reacts when it's Mm -hmm. receiving some energy, but not overwhelming energy that makes it visible when it's normally invisible?
1: How about an artificial atmosphere or a magnetic field around it?
0: Okay. i would I would say feel, but I wouldn't say magnetic and certainly wouldn't be atmosphere because you'd see evidence of an atmosphere unless the atmosphere is caused by what's happening on the dimorphos side being transmitted through and yes. all the air is being mm-hmm. expelled from like exudite. from exactly exactly it's being yes. it's like blowing up a balloon you're seeing the shock wave of the expanding gases escaping, and they're Escaping almost spherically as opposed to like the material objects that we're seeing as part of uh, a three-dimensional weird geometric. Look at all that geometry.
2: Richard, it's not R- just that. I, I'm going to say this. There is a peculiar repeating uh, like archway design See, This here. is why if we need
0: is... your sketching. So the mm-hmm. mouse
2: will have to wait.
0: Oh, <laughs> boy. But, yeah, I mean, to me... Richard, not, you know... Go ahead.
3: What? Oh, no, I did, no, I'm just telling you, don't get Andrew fired. Uh, they can't fire <laughs> fired him. Fired up or fired?
0: They need him.
3: Yeah. Okay. You know. Well, I know... Well, he happens to be very, very good at what he does, which is always a good thing and for job And he's the only security,
0: guy in the damn but, solar system who can do this. <laughs> well, <laughs> not sure about that. But, yeah. By uh, anyway,
3: I what A rhetorical question. If you rotate one magnetic field inside another,
0: what happens? You get electricity, you get voltage, you get a current.
3: Yes. Well, uh, Didymos rotates. It rotates on its own, you know, uh, relative to the rest of the solar system. Um, Not Every, every,
0: every, it used to rotate by two, two
3: hours. No, no, no. no. A little over two two hours. 2.26 hours,
0: two hours and 20 minutes, give or take. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, what was really weird is they've had three weeks of data collection. Uh, This is a NASA team. They did not mention, and I'm trying to get, you know, my my astronomer types, the citizen scientist types I'm working with, I'm trying to get them to measure it. And they're kind of bored with everything. They think it's all, you know, the story's over, which is how people can be lulled to sleep. They can see something amazing right in front of them and have no idea what they're looking at. I want them to measure the rotational period of Didymos because it should still be in the vicinity of 2.26 hours, and it's not. Nowhere did NASA, with all their incredibly incredibly sensitive telescopes all over the world, like 13 or more major observatories all over the planet, not one of them reported the rotational period of Didymos.
6: Uh, 15's up and Jonathan's here.
0: Excellent. John. Excellent. Jonathan, welcome to the party. We need to raise your volume. You need to raise your volume. Okay.
7: Oh, I can do something.
0: All right. I'm, I'm raising. I don't want to get you too out of level with the other folks. Okay. And I'm refreshing my page and there is my number 15. Thank you. Keys. Beautiful. Okay. So John, go look at item number eight. I'm sorry. Item number four. My item number four. Yes. What do you see around Dimorphos and Didymos in the upper right-hand corner?
5: And have you have
0: have you been the the explosion? The aftermath of the explosion. Yeah. Yeah. What do you see? And have you heard any of our conversation?
1: Uh, I just tuned in uh, at at the last break. So for the last. You know, to catch the last hour,
3: I just finished my taxes. <laughs> ah,
0: congratulations. Okay, Andrew, um, Andrew and I are the wingnuts to see incredible three-dimensional geometry.
5: In yeah, a, it looks so- like
0: architecture.
5: Yes! Yes! yes. yes!
1: Three-dimensional blown Gothic? up Gothic. Gothic. Yeah. Well, it looks very Arches Park. You know yes. I, mean? <laughs> I think we're looking at
0: the guts of Dimorphos splayed out by the explosion like the inflation model of the universe by what's his name, uh, uh, Goot or Guthrie, I forget his physicist, they came up with the inflation model where everything expands at super velocity, but it all stays together in the same geometry. That's what I'm seeing. It's like someone took a magnifier and simply magnified the very tiny, because on this scale, if, if Didymos is half a mile across, then Dimorphos, which is in the center of the bright expanse to the upper, uh, you know, eleven o'clock position, would be one fifth of that. So this is like an instantaneous expansion of the geometry inside this ancient in the model spaceship.
2: Richard, there's this um, wonderful little um, art and knickknacks you know shop near my home and one of the things that this fellow sells are these beautiful cards that are intricately cut sculptures like they you, you when you open them up they turn into a 3d model of these beautiful intricate spindly you know paper that just all this is what this reminds me of it's just like it's this is incredible wow okay guys we're at the it,
0: bottom uh, of the hour we've got a hold up mm-hmm. there okay Everyone pause, take a deep breath. I know we're talking about some
3: really
0: far-out stuff tonight, but yeah, space is far out. Hidden history is far out. A space agency which does weird things and never tells its people what it's really doing, that's far out. There's nothing simple or mundane about any of this. And again, if you want to join us, um, uh, 917 889 um, let's see, I have to actually get the thing up here because I can't do it from memory. 917 um, 889 You can join the conversation if you've got a bright idea or you have something you want to contribute or you think we're totally nuts. All opinions are treated equally until we have total definitive proof. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return...
4: filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs, $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel, or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 an episode, $0.02 per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com.
5: And
0: welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go here on the other side of midnight. If you want to join the conversation, and we've got someone calling in from area code 804. So given the fact that I invited you, let me click on the right icon, and you're on the air. Sign in, please.
5: Oh, hi, Richard. Barbara Honiger. How are you? Oh, Barbara.
0: Barbara. It's Barbara Honiger. You're not supposed to give away away our secret yet. Don't give away our secret. No, I'm
5: not going to give away any secrets. I just want to point out an amazing synchronicity, which may be important, and maybe not, and then I'll get off the phone.
0: And that is, in number 14, I believe, let's
5: see, is that... uh, it looks like that's your item number Let's fourteen.
0: Look at 14.
5: Uh, you open it up. It says the the web
4: image of the Didymos post impact. Okay.
0: Yeah, fourteen. I was just about to get to because it's a, a stunning. Okay, well,
4: let me let, let me point out.
1: Um, we met. You mentioned Operation Starfish. That looks
0: like a starfish to me. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay,
4: Okay. I'm going to get off the phone. You talk about it. Okay.
0: Okay. Uh, Actually, a very interesting segue, Barbara. Uh, If everybody goes to my item number 14, click on that. This is a side-by-side comparison of a nebula, a planetary nebula, which is, I forget how many thousand light years away, photographed by Hubble uh, a couple, three years ago. And on the right is a negative image of the first few hours of the Didymos Dimorphos explosion from the Webb Space Telescope. Now, we're all familiar with the diffraction uh, uh, spikes around the Webb. There are six of them. You can see those. The important thing is what's in the middle and how it appears to be cone-shaped up and cone-shaped down, very similar when you click on the red rectangle and make it bigger to the geometry of that extraordinary planetary nebula, which is really confounding all the theorists you have these extraordinary geometries around planetary nebula, and none of the mainstream guys can figure out how in a vacuum where things move as spheres and spirals and all that, do you get this extraordinary geometry. And when you look at the details, there is such an intriguing comparison because what I think is governing the shapes of these uh, celestial objects in the galaxy Uh, which are twins. They're double stars whirling around each other very, very tightly, very ancient stars, white dwarfs and maybe red dwarfs or maybe a main sequence star at the low end of the main sequence. Material is shared between one star and the other, and the orbital period and inclination of the orbit changes. In other words, the angular momentum is transferred from one star to the other, which in the Palma's uh, laboratory experiments and uh, Nikolai Kozarev's uh, equivalent experiments in the old Soviet Union, is how you tap in to the torsion field energy and release extraordinary amounts of hyperdimensional physics. I think what we're seeing on incredibly different scales is a natural event in the galaxy doing it uh, somewhere a thousand light years away that was caught by Hubble many years ago and by other telescopes long before. But this is the best resolution data that we ever got. And then if you look to the right, to the negative image of Webb, we're seeing in those first few hours now, we're far beyond the scale of the previous image with that geometry that that Andrew and and Ron and Robert and I were talking about. We're now looking at uh, something that's hundreds of miles across And then, of course, as it gets bigger and bigger, it shows us another geometry on an even bigger scale of thousands of miles, which is where we get the outlines of number 13. An inner and an outer tetrahedral morphology with not enough dust to fill in, in the outer part, all of the geometric form that is clustering around the inner system and is being moved around by solar radiation pressure. So, yeah, that uh, that is not an accidental comparison. And again, um, who knows what the guys who were banging off the nuclear weapons over the South Pacific in the early 60s knew about what n- nuclear weapons really are tapping into. And uh, jo- uh, Joseph Farrell and I have had these discussions where some of these tests very much underperformed and other nuclear tests overwhelmingly overperformed. And, and uh, Joseph and I think that the missing component is that if you do a nuclear test on the wrong day, you don't get much of, of an effect. If you do it on the right day, you get a huge effect because you're not just looking at uh, thermonuclear fission or fusion. Uh, I'm sorry, fusion of a thermonuclear weapon or fission of a uh, ordinary atomic bomb but you're doing something that literally is opening doors between dimensions and gating other energy through, which is exactly what seems to have happened uh, with the Didymos-Dimorphos collision of the DART spacecraft three weeks ago. The floor is open.
3: Sorry. Go ahead. Did you hear me? Uh, A detail with the the package is that hasn't come up yet is that Didymos, which is just sitting there, poor thing, uh, hopefully it's still okay, Uh, it is basically unique in shape. You know, it looks like a perfectly reasonable shape for something to be, but it's the only one we have in the catalogs that's exactly like that. It's so pristine and so perfect. Because I think it was deliberately—I
0: think it was deliberately set up as the time capsule, so they chose the best surviving thing that we could then figure out the rest of the history by the very objects that were carrying the message. I yeah, think. it's
3: definitely as pretty as the Pompidou Center, or <laughs> you know, or or uh, the Disney Building in, in Hollywood, or something. It's uh, yeah. Uh, okay, Robert, it's
0: time to segue to the Antarctic. So start yes, out
3: with the unseen,
0: uh, yes, I, like mysterious Russian expedition. Sure. Yeah, well, first of all, I wanted to do two
1: plugs, one for Andrew and one for me. Andrew and our friend Leanne Jones have just put out a book illustrated by Andrew Curry. It's called Mr. Bratchuk's Marvelous Motor. It's about a Canadian inventor who invented a perpetual motion motor that ran on air, and I recommend it to everyone. The the illustrations are fantastic, and Andrew even put his son in there. I think you got to pay him. Secondly... Tomorrow is my birthday, Aww. and we're celebrating the birthday party on the air with George Nuri uh, on Coast to Coast AM. They invited me for that day, so if you can stay up till 3 p. 3 a.m. in the morning, you can join us, but uh, I am going to be talking really straight talk about the UFO cover-up and uh, the the decision of the United States government to make a deal with aliens in 1947 is recommended by Albert Einstein and uh, Robert Oppenheimer. And I'm going to lift the veil on this whole thing with George Nuri. 3 a.m. tomorrow, October 18th. And I'll, I may even sing happy birthday to... Are they coming they are... to take you away? Yeah, uh-huh. that's my escort. <laughs> no, I may even sing Happy Birthday to a man who richly Deserves one, and that would be Lee Harvey Oswald Who was born on October 18th 1930 oh. Yeah, what a coincidence That's how I know he was innocent A, Lib- a Libra could never do such hmm. But anyway, let's go to uh, Let's go I asked the audience to turn on the uh, Video that we provided It's under Andrew's items And if you videos just silently. You don't have to listen to the narration and just study the the pictures. Richard and I had a conversation about it earlier this week. So I'd like to read from my email in response to Richard because uh, this is uh, the key to it. And also, I want to thank Barbara Honaker for calling in about the starfish because this is also very significant. I think we're experiencing a psychic (laughs) resonance right now amongst all of us. Because weeks ago, Andrew sent me a beautiful photograph of a starfish that he encountered and had to wade into the water to take a picture. Of oh,
0: yes, beautiful. yes. That was really amazing.
1: So this, this image and this message is in the air. And I'll give you the kicker later when I talk about the thing. <clears throat> and regarding these photographs in this video. I wrote to Richard. I've seen almost all of those photos many times before. Most of them were discovered over the past decade on Google Earth by independent researchers. There is a photograph of a half disc inside a cave, and I've seen that one before as well. Uh, from the mountain, this shows the structure. Where does it go? As quote unquote Turtle Cave, which I prefer to call. Nazi helmet cave because it looks like that chamber pot helmet that uh, the Nazis wore in is, World War II. Is that the
0: one with that huge door that's kind of partway open?
1: Well, it's a cavern with a helmet over the entrance, like an awning. It's on uh, the website. If people go back to the other side of Midnight a couple of years ago where we did oh, that yeah, yeah. they
0: can easily do that. No, if you don't type, do that now.
1: Do it later. No, not now. Later. You can be, find it easily by typing in... Um, raw bird r-a-byrd is something i named a crater that's on the same mountain that nobody apparently nobody sees that it. it's either an extinct volcano or the site of a meteor impact that melted ice and left the crater 1700 feet in diameter so i've also seen the photos of the air spacecraft that's being transported openly on u.s highways the blue one was photographed on in arizona on highway 10. I remember seeing the flying saucer being transported, uncovered, as it was shown on CNN after a bunch of people took videos of it on the public highway. I recall it was in California near Palo Alto, not Arizona. The blue space plane looks like a drone, and that was shown in shown in Arizona. Obviously. They were intentional leaks to give the public a peekaboo view of military intelligence secret projects. Yeah,
0: it's kind of like Bob Haldeman in his limited hangout to Nixon. If they, if they show us something really exotic, they can then say, oh, UFOs are just our secret stuff.
1: Exactly. Especially the flying saucer, which would be an attempt at a soft debunking mm-hmm. of UFO reality by hinting or suggesting that the UFOs that people are seeing. But this was many, not- many years
0: ago. This was like 10 years ago.
5: Not yeah.
1: Yeah, 10 years ago, and it was there. It's the plain as day. As a matter of fact, let me uh, reminisce. One day I was fly, going out to fly at uh, MacArthur Airport, on the, and I was on the Long we Island. Have,
5: we
0: have 15 minutes in the show left.
1: Okay, it's very short.
0: I was going on the
1: um, Long Island Expressway, heading to MacArthur Airport to uh, take a plane up and do some flying on the East Coast here, and I looked down the highway, and about three miles away, I saw a flashing light. I saw a tractor trailer. And I saw a flying saucer flying over the highway at about 30 feet above the ground. And as it came closer, and I was doing 60, 70 miles an hour that way, and they were doing 50 the other way. And what they were carrying was one of the ray domes from German aircraft that shaped like a flying saucer. Mm, so it was really okay. quite an interesting thing. So this object was similar. Wait, wait. You, was-
0: you don't mean one of those spinning things from the AWACS. I- uh, exactly. Seven, those are not Grumman. That's a Boeing 707s with the big rotating well, antenna. The,
1: the, the, airplane, look- the airplane is Boeing, but the, the raid dome was made by Grumman. Okay.
0: Okay, we
1: go on. We go on. Obviously, <clears throat> intentional leak peekaboo to suggest that what we're seeing in the skies is our secret programs. Of course, that's bunk, not debunk. <laughs> the only ones that I had not seen were those about the mountain ranges discovered by the Russians under the ice. So the images are authentic, although I cannot verify the Russian photos of a 3,000-meter-high mountain range since I'm, I'm seeing those for the first time. Now about the starfish. The thing, the thing uh, is something that has to do with life forms in Antarctica. The thing was based on a book... Or a story. Oh, you mean novel. the movie,
0: the the thing. The movie, the thing, yeah. The, the, uh, where, the famous Howard it, Hawks 1950s movie that was set right. in the Arctic as opposed to the Antarctic, and they exactly. have this huge flying saucer buried in the ice, and the thing is the pilot inside who survived.
1: Yeah, James Arness.
0: Yes, for
1: his first big role. Well, I have to say that having read in the Mountains of Madness. The interesting thing, this is what the thing is based on, except they transposed it to the Arctic. It's actually in Antarctica. And the thing that... Well, you know why, right? Well, tell me They
0: didn't dare focus it on the Antarctic because of Of all the stuff that's there.
1: Of course, of course. They wanted to deflect attention to the opposite side. Yep,
0: opposite sides of the planet.
1: (laughs) But here's the point. The creature... It starts to gobble up the scientists. The plant being. No, yeah, he's a plant being up in Antarctica and the thing, but in the Mountains of Madness, it is a starfish-shaped creature that's been down there for millions of years. And these scientists come down and uh, go into the cave, and the starfish creature starts
0: gobbling them up. You know why starfish are interesting, don't you?
1: Well, tell me. I know a lot of re- reasons, but let me hear they,
0: this. They regenerate. You take off an arm and they grow it back perfectly. <laughs> exactly. And that's what the creature in the thing
1: did in the Antarctic. Remember, they cut off his arm? Yep. And he regrew an arm and then they feed blood to the severed arm and start and ticking. The, the, you mean the, the Howard Hawks movie, yeah. Yeah, the Howard Hawks movie. The other thing I remember about that movie. Is Great in movie. The Super in the movie. The, the reporter says, This thing could have come from Mars. And when I saw that the first time, Mars was a dot 50 million miles away. And never in my wildest (laughs) dreams as a child would I have thought that we would be exploring the surface of Mars ourselves. We have come so far in 70 years.
0: Yeah, but they kept it all secret. Yeah, well, we're the ones that are giving the secrets out. Provided so. this damn show continues. I'm telling you, we're right on the edge, folks. We need help. Yep. Yep. We really need help. And I've never done this before, but we're right up against the edge. And I don't want to scare people, but we need to be a voice, you know, as this all comes tumbling out of River McGee's closet. Yeah. Good Two more.
1: Before we run out
6: of time, I want to check think- real quick. Yeah, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. The, the stuff coming out of the ice... You can see that there are these are tree trunks or whatever, and you've got the over over under over under weaving of rope or cable or whatever, and then there's something cables going down on the ground that make a right angle turn and go up on the side, the left side. Um, obviously, that's not natural. Well,
0: you're talking about the picture in number four, right, in Andrew section.
6: But the one in the in the video.
0: Oh, I don't have the video up. I just have to scale Yeah, we can't queue it up, we can discuss that later.
1: Uh, but I want to say this. The reason for Operation High Jump was that in 1946, the British sent a special operation uh, down there, special air services to explore Antarctica, and they ran into some giant humanoids who uh, were really, really, Terribly destructive and wiped out most of the uh, British special operations and uh, special air services crew. I believe that that was what was the, uh, the reason why Operation High Jump was mounted. Now going back to 1932, I mentioned that Stalin had sent a Russian a Soviet expedition down to Antarctica and they were searching for uranium. They went back to, to Moscow and they reported to, they reported to Stalin that they had run into a race of 12 foot tall copper skin, copper colored giant men who did not speak but communicated telepathically and that they were assisted by short little gray beings. And the Russians told them that they were on, on a peaceful mission there looking for uranium. And the tall, 12-foot-tall, bronze-skinned men told them, no go. You can't come in here. So these stories do line up. The, the giant... But wait, uh, wait, don't
0: you think that the, the Stalin story is a cover story? Because everybody in anybody's knowledge knows what the real stuff is. It's just us great unwashed that don't know. It was a perfect time to say, oh, we're looking for uranium, when they're really looking for ancient artifacts from either an earlier human incredible civilization or aliens.
1: Well, maybe that's the cover story for the purpose of the mission. But we know that the,
3: the
0: Soviet scientists
1: were just as smart as the Germans and the Americans. Of course, of but course
3: they were. We had a
1: technological edge um, as far as industry and manufacturing. So everyone was looking for uranium. But that's, still, that's not the important part. The part is that running into this race of 12-foot-tall, bronze-skinned humanoids, they didn't say aliens, humanoids, reminds me an awful lot of the whole Anunnaki um, legends, that they were gigantic beings. And perhaps that is where they retreated or have had their base uh, throughout these, these epics and operating from Antarctica. Remember, Admiral Byrd said that in the future war, we would have to fight against aircraft that were capable of flying from pole to pole to
0: pole. Remember what Douglas MacArthur said at West Point. The yes. next war will be interplanetary.
1: And we It's on have... the record. Yeah, I saw uh, that. You know, I saw that speech to the long gray line, his re- his uh
5: farewell
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh it was amazing. In those days they would broadcast
3: everything live and I was lucky enough to Well they to didn't see have
0: tape. That's why they had to do it live. <laughs>
3: you know yeah, Robert yeah, and and Richard, point of order. Uh, what were people doing looking for uranium in uh, in 1932?
0: Because we knew it would they be the energy source. They just didn't know how to. They do could it have good.
3: gotten it in Arkansas. They didn't have to go to the U. Uh, yeah, Antarctica sure. for something sure. that was only used for watch dials. In that day. No,
0: that,
1: that was radium. That was Ron, radium. Ron, well, I know.
3: Yeah.
0: Ron, the Russians,
1: the Soviets would not be allowed into Arkansas to mine for uranium. <laughs> they had to, they
3: no, but. Well they have Afghanistan uh they have Afghanistan and Korea. Korea has the largest deposits of uranium that we know of. That's why North Korea and South uh Korea have a line between them because all the mineral stuff is up in the we're, uh, we're
0: running out of time. Ron, Ron, yeah, I know. I didn't point, mean to go point derail taken, it. Point taken. One. Okay, keep well, going. Robert, yeah. keep going.
3: Yeah, I just said when I hear giants I want uh, authentication. That's all.
0: Well, it's in well, the Smithsonian archives. They've okay. just Yes, there are. There were giants. Our ancestors were giants. There's artifacts all over the solar system that are evidence of giant structures like on the moon. So yes, giants living temporarily, not permanently, unless they have fields and anti-gravity, are perfectly within the model. Well, you know, the, okay. Bible,
1: measures, the, the, the Bible mentions that they measured the bed of the last giant in history and his bed was 13 feet in, in length. And of course, we have... David and Goliath. So I think mm-hmm. that they were the remnant of an Anunnaki hybrid race of the Nephilim. So I don't think it's uh, out of, out of uh, possibility that they may have retreated to Antarctica and have been operating there uh, since time immemorial. Well, the book
0: Forbidden Archaeology okay. by Tompkins, Thompson, and I forget, uh, Michael Cremo, documents all the evidence of giant skeletons that the Smithsonian scarfed up. And stashed away. So no, this is not even controversial. There used to be giants in the earth, and nobody wants us to know about it. Uh, Twelve my, feet, my, I'll my, go my, for it.
3: Uh, for twenty feet, no.
0: That's all yeah. Well, there's, there, a, there's another problem, and it has to do with gravity, and that's changing physics. So keep going, Robert. We got, we yeah. got, we got well, four minutes. I, I know a U.S. Marine.
1: A U, I know a U.S. Marine very well, and he told me that when he was in Afghanistan they had a firefight and they killed an 18 foot tall giant. They killed a couple of Marines by ripping their heads off and ripping their arms right out of their bodies. And that when they had to, when they finally brought him down, they had to transport him under a payload helicopter on a pallet because, uh, thing was so big. The
0: mass, and of course, sheer mass. Yes. Yeah,
1: sure. Yeah. So, and remember in 20, what? 2012, uh, or so during the Barack Obama administration, everyone was going to Afghanistan. Uh, um, let me see, John Kerry went down there, a, a couple of you other- You the Antarctic? War- no, no, Afghanistan regarding the giants and something that was found mm-hmm. there. She found a cave that seemed to have something that created uh, time, um, time anomalies. And there's a movie, all of you need to see, it's called The Objective, and it's precisely about a CIA operation into Afghanistan to find a secret secret site. In the end, it turns out they found in Afghanistan uh, a nest for UFOs, and that the CIA was sacrificing this group of soldiers to get to the nest. It's a fantastic movie, it's called The Objective. It's really well made. But the thing that shocked me was when the titles ran at the end, it was co-produced and co-written by Wesley Clark Jr. Oh, and I really? Said to
5: myself,
1: yeah. And I said to myself, hmm. oh my God, did daddy tell him this story and him write it up? Now, the interesting thing is if you see the objectives now, they don't show you the titles. Because I made a big deal about that. I wrote, hey, this is a serious movie. Okay, Let's we got looking. one minute. Okay, that's yours. I'm finished.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, if you want to see the reality of ancient artifacts of the South Pole, look at my number 15. Uh, the story of how I did it, we've talked about on previous shows. We have someone who was looking for the original bird footage to get much better data, but there's obvious, incredible geometric, artificial things in the Mountains of Madness in the Antarctic. And I think that our science fiction friend somehow knew this. The reason they transposed the thing, thank you. They transposed the thing from uh, the Antarctic to the Arctic is so they would keep attention away. And I'm kind of running out of time. So I want to thank all my guests, Robert Morningstar and Andrew Curry and Keith Morgan and uh, Ron Gerbron and Barbara Honecker for her brief look in. Yeah, Barbara and I are working on a little surprise that will come to fruition in the next few days, actually maybe a week or two. So until then, until next weekend, more surprises, um, you've been on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return next week. Say goodnight, everyone. And remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. night.